Greetings, friends. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the film review podcast where good taste and bad taste blow up after they collide. Oh no! My tastes! They were so flammable! I like you say collide and then it's, a, it's an explosion, so clearly explosive things are colliding. Well, I imagine... Good taste and bad taste are explosive things. Our, our taste is explosively good. Uh, I like or to bad. Think, <laughs> some, sometimes I like to think so. I know that's not a fact, though. My name is Whitney Seibold. I'm the one with the bad taste. <laughs> uh, I write for... It's not IGN. according to Twitter. <laughs> you know what? On Twitter, we have great taste and we have bad taste alternately, so... They're, they're, they, they're clearly the ultimate arbiters. Uh, I write for IGN. I write for other websites that might have me. And uh, with me, as always, is my scintillating, intelligent co-host. Yeah, uh, I'm William Bibiani. And darn good looking. Oh, thank you. I'm William Bibiani. I'm finding a bit of a cold. Uh, I'll try not to cough into the microphone and get you all sick. Um, but, uh, yeah, I write for Bloody Disgusting and The Rap. Uh, and everybody calls me Bibbs. And we have got a ton of movies to review this week on Critically Acclaimed. This week and next week, we're basically just doing all of December. Try, trying to catch <coughs> up. I mean, it, it's award season. Yeah. Uh, a lot of uh, voting bodies have already submitted uh, all of their award nominations. A lot of critics have written their best of the year lists because a lot of critics are ahead of the curve. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of screenings took place last month. Which or unfortunately leaves, leaves most of the hoi polloi in the dark. Um, it's like, oh yeah, be sure to see this film. It's the best of the year. When does it come out? Oh yeah, like four weeks. Yeah. It's like, well, that doesn't help me now. It, it, it might get you excited to see it, mm. but yeah, I, I feel like in general we announce these things a little early. What I find kind of hilarious is that uh, three major releases, Spies in Disguise, mm. Star Wars 15, and Cats are n- not even being considered. Like, people are writing their lists without having seen those movies. Because they're all screening, they're, like, really late really in the month. Really late in the month. So I think they're pretty confident that none of, those, none of those films are the best of the year. Well, I think when it comes to Spies in Disguise and Cats, I think they realize they're going for niche audiences. Spies mm-hmm. in Disguise is a kid's movie about mm-hmm. an animated Will Smith who becomes a pigeon, <clears throat> who's also a spy. Cats is a movie for no one uh, <sighs> about... Mysterious, smooth-bodied, small-headed cat people who do monstrous <laughs> things when you fall asleep. Uh, and then Star Wars is the sort of thing where Disney doesn't give a fuck mm-hmm. if it's on your best of the year list. Just come see it and pay they, a lot of money. They do not care if it gets nominated for Best Picture. Of course, they like it. They do not care mm-hmm. because they know they're printing money. Yeah. So they don't bother screening it for you in advance. They're screening a couple of days in advance for the press, and even that hmm. they're nervous about because of this obsession with spoilers we have over Star Wars, which is ironic considering we spend years at a time trying to predict what's going to be in the next Star Wars. But then we stop a month before its release and say, okay, no more talking now, and hmm. only let the company tell us the information. We can't research or speculate any longer. We're going to review Star Wars uh, next week. This yeah. week, on Critically Acclaimed, we are reviewing a bunch of stuff, as I said, mm. uh, Jumanji, The Next Level, Uncut Gems, Richard Jewell, A Hidden Life, Bombshell, Black Christmas, Six Underground, and A Christmas Love Story. What's it called? A Christmas Love Story. Oh, good. Yeah. I, I bet it's a love story that takes place mm. at Christmas. Uh, before Christmas. Oh, so like... like At Christmas time. Like, like in BC? Like a love story before Christ? <laughs> Okay, now I want to see that movie. A love story before Christmas? (laughs) I I actually really want to see that movie now. Moving on. Uh, Let's talk about the big release of the weekend. The biggest release of the weekend is, in terms of financially, Mm -hmm. uh, Jumanji The Next Level. I I saw this one, but it didn't. Damn. Okay. 
This is the, um, it's the third Jumanji film. Yep. I, I saw the first one, and I saw it out of order back in 1995. You saw it out of, was the DVD on was, random chapter no, Well, no, it was playing in the theater where I was working, you ah. see. And uh, when you work in a movie theater, you can kind of duck in and out of movie theaters, and sometimes I watch bits and pieces. So I have seen every bit of Jumanji, but I don't think I've seen it from beginning to end. The original Jumanji, <clears throat> directed by Joe Johnston, mm. is a visual effects spectacular, and it's based pretty closely on a book by Chris Von Allsberg. Chris von Allsberg is well, a no, picture... they added a lot for the movie. Well, I mean, like, it's the, a picture book. The so, basic yeah. concept is the same, unlike mm-hmm. Jumanji, The Next Level, and Welcome to the Jungle, where they changed mm-hmm. it a lot. Um, <clears throat> the idea is a group of kids are playing a board game that is set in the jungle, mm-hmm. and every time they land on a space, they say something like, oh no, you're attacked by elephants, a bunch of elephants like burst into their house. Yeah, would physically manifest. <clears throat> It's about the literalization of childhood imagination. It's a wonderful book. The movie takes that basic premise, but just adds more wrinkles, makes it harder to play the game. They have to run from things, then find a quiet place to play the game. And then Robin Williams was a kid who played the game years ago, and he went missing because he got sucked into the game. And um, It's fine. I I, I wasn't (laughs) like... I think if you were like eight or nine when that movie came out, it's one of your favorite films. But I was like fifteen, yeah. So I liked it yeah. okay, but I'm not in love with it. Some people consider this a childhood classic. Good for them. Mm. I kind of get it, but personally, I find it kind of thin. Uh, yeah, I didn't find it to be particularly charming uh, when I saw it. When I, when mm. I, but I was you know cynical high schooler at the yeah. time, and uh, it wasn't until like maybe just a few years ago that I realized that it did sort of carry with it a little bit of nostalgia. Yeah. I thought it had just been sort of forgotten and left behind, and realized that there are people who were slightly younger than me who are just carrying a torch for Jumanji. They watched it over and over again on home video and TV, and that's totally fine. Um, for whatever reason, Jumanji, even though it was successful, never spawned a sequel, so they rebooted it a few years ago with a new take on it, in which a bunch of dis- uh, mismatched teenagers got sucked into a Jumanji video game, and they got to replaced by player avatars who were played by Dwayne big, Johnson, big movie stars, yeah, yeah Dwayne Johnson, uh, Karen Gillan, uh, Kevin Hart, and Jack Black. And they went through a Which series a of good, video game-like mm, adventures. Good acting powerhouse for those actors because they get to play teenagers. Yeah, Dwayne like, Johnson got to play a nerdy teen who didn't know what he was doing. Karen mm. Gillan got to play a wallflower, but now she's very much out there. Lara the Croft warrior-ess. Yeah. Um, the tough jock guy got to play like a nerdy uh, Kevin Hart. Mm. And the popular girl at school got to play... Jack Black. Or rather, Jack Black got to play the popular girl at school. Depending on whether you're looking at it from like the perspective mm. of the movie or the movie making, yeah. Clever idea, really fun action. It's a good movie. I haven't. I didn't see it. It's I, fine. I missed it. it, was, it it's a, just like this one. It's one that came out around holiday time, and there were just other films that took precedence I, at the time. It was unexpectedly popular. Yeah. It made a ton of money. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, they use video, mechanic, video game mechanics in an entertaining way uh, to drive the story. Um, the cast is really, really fun. It's funny. The action is cool. It works. I got nothing against Jumanji Welcome to the Jungle. Solid flick. So there's a sequel now. And the sequel uh, is they're starting to play around with it a little bit. So the idea is... It, is so it's the same characters now? Uh, mostly. Right. Uh, so it's the same four. We, they've mm. gone off to college. Uh, and everyone has taken the lessons that they've learned from their game of Jumanji and made their lives a lot better. Mm-hmm. Uh, except for the protagonist, who was the you know cooler in the game, 
Mm. Like he was Dwayne Johnson and he was awesome, but now he's in college and working his way through it and constantly demoralized and feeling really terrible. And basically he's overcome with increasing depression and he's alienated from his friends. And so he goes home for the holidays. He starts hanging out with his grandfather, played by Danny DeVito. (laughs) Nice. Danny DeVito, who is uh, is, uh, getting over a hip surgery, uh, starts telling him, like, yeah, when you're young, you gotta enjoy it, because getting old sucks and there's nothing you can do about it. So he decides to fix the game, which they had originally broken, Mm -hmm. and go back in the game. He disappears, all his friends show up, realize he's stuck in the game, they go back in the game, but because the game is broken... They don't just take them. They also take Danny DeVito and his estranged best friend, Danny Glover. (laughs) Oh, no. And with the exception of Karen Gillan, they're all in different bodies. Oh, that's fine. So they're they're playing different characters now. So Dwayne Johnson is being played by, Mm. and in essence playing, Mm. Danny DeVito. (laughs) Which is a fun pitch. Uh Uh-huh. Kevin Hart. I'm not this, sure if, if Dwayne Johnson is like a talented enough actor to pull that off. He is not. Okay. <laughs> he has a terrible Danny DeVito impersonation. Oh, he no. sounds. He gave him a lisp. Why? Danny DeVito doesn't have a lisp. Where did you get that from? <clears throat> um. Uh. Kevin Hart is now playing and played by uh, Danny Glover. And Kevin Hart is a, is a really fast-talking guy, and Danny Glover is a very measured performer. So Kevin Hart slows everything way the hell down, and it's hilarious. It's genuinely funny just to see Kevin Hart talk slow. Uh, and then the tough jock is now stuck in the Jack Black character, and he was like, "I've gotten used to Kevin Hart. Now I gotta now I gotta be this guy. All I do is read a map." Um, and uh, uh, yeah, so now they have to find uh, our hero, one of the wolves. I always forget which one. There's Alex Wolf and Nat Wolf, and they okay. look exactly alike to me. But um, they, they do look very similar. They're they're not twins. They they're brothers. They just I, look similar. I think it's Alex Wolf. Hang on, Jumanji Alex Wolf. Let me. What do you got for us? Alex Wolf was the one from Paper Towns. And, yeah. and Nat Wolf was the one from Hereditary. Uh, yeah, Alex Wolf. Alex Wolf. Is Alex Wolf. Alex Wolf is the right one. I, I like them both. They're both I, really I talented. They're both, they're both very talented. I, they're both really really talented. They look a lot alike. Um. Uh, and so the mystery continues. They go through some of the same elements, like video game elements, as the mm. first movie, they, they but they play the same levels. So some yeah. of them, but All then right. they actually end up on a different in, in like a different game, like a like a Jumanji two. Oh, okay, um, which doesn't quite make sense, and a lot of the stuff in the game doesn't quite make sense because it's, it's a game on a cartridge. It's not yeah, like and it's the same cartridge, or something. So oh. it hasn't been updated. So, eh. but maybe, the, but we also know that the universe of the game continues when it's not being played by people because people have been stuck in the game before like that was the plot point like someone oh, had been so stuck in like, the game for like 20 years like in the Tron last movie legacies or kind of um the mechanics don't entirely work but they don't really want you to focus on that mm. they want you to focus on the fun and games of it the fun and games are mostly fun and game like <laughs> um i have a really good time with this i i feel like there are Basically, it's the same movie, but we're doing a few things a little differently. Mm. I feel like they touch upon some interesting ideas that I wish they'd explored more. It would have given the film more of its own personality. Uh, the idea of... Basically, we're talking about, especially when we're given the old men who are now taking on young bodies, and mm. Danny DeVito starts really enjoying being able to use The Rock's body to punch people <laughs> and like do all these cool things, because he didn't like getting old. Mm. We're starting to touch on ideas of basically transhumanism. 
mm. uh, okay, which like, is the philosophy of like the idea that we can use science to evolve the self to to ri- essentially rid humanity of their bodies. Yeah, and yeah. put and put their consciousness. In, in the abstract, yeah, wherever, wherever we like. Cyborgs. Cyborgs, yeah. that might be a transhumanism thing. Or you could download your brain into something else. It's a yeah. sci-fi concept. Jumanji actually is kind of about that, whether they like it or not. And I wish they'd explored it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I also wish they'd explored the idea of using these escapist fantasy narratives to explore the fact that the protagonist of the film, at least until he disappears, mm-hmm. is going through clinical depression. Mm. I actually was really connecting with that for a while. I was mm-hmm. just like, oh, yeah, what happens after you go to Narnia and then you come back yeah. and then you just have to go yeah. to work? Yeah. Like, that there's, sucks. There's actually, like, a, there's actually a really good indie film from about a decade ago called Ben X about that very thing. Oh, yeah, this sort of, like, a depressed and kind of at-risk young boy who's living his life through a video game avatar. And, yeah. Uh, Sort of how the, how the two start bleeding into one another yeah. a little bit, and it's, like when, it's, it's not, it's, but it's, it's literal the, though. Like it's he's not literally, the, it's not the cheeriest thing. Yeah, he's not literally projecting his consciousness, but mm-hmm. it is how he's using video games to sort of explore his himself. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a lot of stories about people who escape into their art or mm-hmm. their stories or whatever. But when you have a story that's about that being very literal, mm-hmm. like in Jumanji, yeah, it's, it it's, adds it's, a bit more. Yeah, but techno- actual technology. <laughs> um, I actually don't have a lot to say about this movie other than um, it's mm-hmm. fun. Uh, the action's fun. The cast is good. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't want to get into spoilers. I will say that Aquafina is in this movie, and she's the best part about it. <laughs> and she's really great. And would be great if, if The Rock, like from the real, if Dwayne Johnson from the real world, uh-huh. went into the game and was played by Aquafina. That would be great too. Like I really I, between this and the farewell. Aquafina is the next thing, and I'm here for it. Well, and I, mean, I love I, her. I was on her side with Oceans Eight and uh, True, but that was like Crazy Rich Asians. Like she had supporting roles in both right. of those, but she's freaking hilarious. But now she's carrying movies and she's doing yeah. it really, really ably. Yeah. So you, you know, you're right. Last year was also we just live in Aquafina's world. <laughs> people say who who should host the Oscars, and like 800 people just said Aquafina. Yeah, just just give it to her. She's fine. Great. Yeah, she's wonderful. Um, so I, I like it a lot. I don't have a lot to say about it. Um, it's fine. It's just, it's just fine. It's fine. It's an it's entertaining... Not, it's a, it's, it's you're a, telling me it's more of the same. It's a bit more of the same. There's a few interesting ideas. Mm-hmm. If you like the original, there's no reason you won't like this, but you mm-hmm. probably won't blow your mind either. It's Wait a classic a Hollywood sequel. Is this a Ben a Ben Garant, Tom Lennon screenplay? Boy, does it seem like it would be, but this, no, this I don't could, think so. They were at those Night at the Museum movies, and they were, <clears> they're all fine. They did a Herbie Fully Loaded, I think. And no, did, I, I don't think. They, they did really a Taxi, don't. the one with uh, Queen Latifah. That, that was them. I I know who you're talking about, and no, I don't think this was them. It, it's it's so sounds like that. It sounds like it would like that's a pretty good idea, but you're going to do something really mainstream with and, it. Aren't and I'm you? tempted to watch a lot of their like I haven't seen any of those Night at the Museum movies, but I'm tempted to watch them just because it is a Lennon Grant. Lennon Grant, by the way, they're a pair of comedians. They got their start in, uh, in the mid '90s with The State. Just a wonderful sketch comedy show. One of the best sketch yeah. comedy shows, period. Uh, Tom Lennon has gone on. They've all, and everybody, like almost all the cast members, have gone on to do really impressive things. They're the ones behind Wet Hot American Summer. Uh, but they have a really kind of weird, subversive sense of humor mm. that does not read at all in the screenplays they write. They, when they took on their yeah. screenwriting gigs, they just did, we're going to do just straight up the middle mainstream. We're just here to make money. We're mm. not here to, to do anything creative for ourselves. Mm. Just nuts and bolts mm. tell the story. Yeah. And they wrote a really, really unbelievably helpful book called Writing Movies for Profit. 
It says fun and profit, but they crossed off the fun and on the, on the title. <laughs> but it's basically just and, how to make a movie that will sell. Yeah, just make a movie that will sell. And yeah, they just say, don't, you're not making art here. You're just sort of selling screenplays. And they say things like, if you're fired off a project, that's the best thing. Because like, you, you're going to get paid either way, and now you don't have to work anymore. It's like, and it's going to be complete. <laughs> going to be completely rewritten. So what? You got your money? Leave. Start on some, Start yeah, another it's project. Not, it's not your problem anymore. Done. Yeah. I, I think we're off the project. Yes! We're off the project! <laughs> Bless them. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Alright. Uh, you tell me mm. about Uncut Gems All right. while I uh, take a Dayquil. Oh my goodness. Okay. <laughs> I'm feeling really, really clogged up. Alright. Well, Uncut Gems is the latest film from the Safdie brothers who made a bit of a mark a couple of years ago with their film Good Time with Robert Pattinson. Uh, Good Time uh, is a panic attack of a movie. Uh, It's just about running around town trying to commit crimes and everybody's hot on your trail and it just does not slow down. Everybody is just panicking and screaming the entire time. And it's really striking. It's really quite quite a good film. Uh, Uncut Gems, same tone. It's just a complete panic attack. Uh, you'll have a heart attack by the end of this and it's longer than Good Time, too. It's like about two and a half hours. I couldn't find a day, Will. I'm, I'm so sorry. Yeah. Welcome back. Would you like some of my tea? No, right. I get you sick. No, I'm giving Urgh. you giving you the last of my tea. No, no, no. I got, right. I got water. I'm good. All right. Uh, this one stars Adam Sandler in uh, one of his dramatic performances that actually sticks. Mm-hmm. I feel like he has very few of those. Uh, but he plays a bit of a scumbag jewelry store <laughs> a owner. Bit. Okay, he's definitely a scumbag because he has a scam going on. Uh, famous people like... Uh, Athletes and other people, uh, rich people who collect jewelry, come into his store and they put down a piece of their own jewelry as collateral on a new piece of jewelry. And he's saying, okay, and when you come back with the money, then I'll give you your piece of jewelry back. Like, here's, but, but, here's my NBA playoff ring. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's yeah. like, just I'll hang on to this as collateral and you can have this piece of jewelry on, on loan for the time being. He takes that piece of jewelry, runs to an, a pawn shop across town, pawns it, gambles the money, presumably wins... Uh, gets the ring back, brings it back to his jewelry shop. He's a little bit richer, having used his collateral as collateral on gambling debts. And uh, this clearly has been his model for a long time because he's in trouble with a lot of people. And in yeah, fact, he owes hundreds of thousands you know, of dollars all around. Town. All around town, he's walking down these, these busy New York streets, and people just sort of stop him and say, "Hey, you owe me a hundred grand!" Oh, look! And he tries to fast talk him. Yeah. I'll pay you. I'll pay you. Right, here, this. take this Rolex. Yeah, they, yeah fine. It's, it's worth thirty thousand right there. And of course, yeah. it's not. Oh, yeah, it's a total. Thing. So yeah, he's he's. Hustling like crazy, he's barely staying ahead of the law. He's completely estranged from his wife, uh, who played by hit- the great Adina Menzel, who has a really wonderful scene in this movie mm. where he like tries to re- reconnect. Oh, and, and, she and just, she's hilarious! She just, like kicks him in the balls, essentially. <laughs> yeah, uh, she's so fucking good in this. Yeah, Adina Menzel, she's like bitter and mean, and she has very good reason to. Meanwhile, he's also uh, he's, because he's estranged from his wife, he is ha- has a hot young new girlfriend who. Uh, he is pay- he's paying for her apartment, so he's in debt in that regard as well. I'm mentioning all the ways he's in debt because if you're an adult, you're stressed out about how much money he's losing. Yeah, this movie is like, okay, so if you're young and you don't mm. understand what it's like to be an adult, to constantly hustle. And granted, mm. if you end up going into a very safe, secure industry mm. uh, and you don't have to hustle like that, good for you. Mm. That's great. A lot of us have to hustle. A lot of us have debts of one kind or another, usually more than one, and you're just constantly borrowing from Peter to pay Paul. Mm. Or at least that's how it feels. Yeah, yeah. 
Basically, you're never secure. The anxiety of financial insecurity is like mm. poured all over this movie, well, like like poisonous maple syrup. And it's every time he makes a bad decision, you're just sort of gripping your armrest. No, don't do that. No, I'm gonna I, I'm gonna gamble this one too. No, you have the money now. <laughs> you can pay him back right now, back right now, doing? and start working. Do something honest, and he, of course he can't because he's a compulsive gambler. And I think that's really what's at the heart of this: mm-hmm. is this guy is has essentially drunk the Kool-Aid on the promise of gambling. Mm -hmm. He feels that thrill, what it is to win and how important it is to him. And sort of that addiction is coloring everything in his life. Uh, Uh, The the plot plot, really kicks off (laughs) when uh, he has over like a year, year or two Mm. acquired a giant black opal. Mm. Uh, And we get to see where it comes from. Actually, it's dug out of the, the ground in uh, Ethiopia, right? It's, I think it's in Ethiopia. It's it's uh, yeah, in a place where essentially people are rioting because they're not being paid to pull diamonds out of the ground, and people are getting injured and killed in these conflicts to get these gems up out of the ground, mm-hmm. so they can be mailed to New York and bought by wealthy people. Yeah. So yeah, there's this whole deep criticism of the gem <laughs> industry. Um, so he acquires this opal and he wants to sell it to an NBA player who is mm. currently uh, in the finals. Mm. <clears throat> the NBA player takes to the gem so hard. I guess he's really superstitious. Mm. And he thinks this gem is speaking to me. I need to have it or I can't win the game tonight. So Adam Sandler says, I actually can't do that because this is scheduled for auction. Mm. But the guy insists. He leaves his playoff ring and says, I'll bring it back tomorrow. First thing Adam Sandler does is pawn the playoff ring, and then the guy doesn't bring the jewel back. Mm-hmm. And now Adam Sandler is scrambling because everyone is after him. Eric Bogosian is beating him up and leaving him in the trunks of cars. Then you find out Eric Bogosian is his brother-in-law. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, He's so screwed in every conceivable way. Yeah, and uh, the the NBA player, by the way, is played by Kevin Garnett, real NBA player. Oh, that's Boston's fun. Play, plays himself. He's uh, I don't Boston know. I don't, I don't know people from sports, so that was really cool. To know, yeah, the, the weekend also shows up in this movie. Yeah, but this takes place like before the weekend was famous, and everyone's like, <laughs> yeah, "It's a little odd." It's a funny little gag, yeah. um, or at least before he was famous as he is now. Um, but um, yeah, this movie is super damn intense. And for a while, I was watching it, and I was really thinking to myself: normally, mm. in a plot about someone who is royally screwed in every conceivable way, mm. and no matter what they do, things get worse. I'm on the hero's side. Mm-hmm. Even something like Quick Change, where they just robbed a bank. Yeah. Still one of the funniest movies ever. Mm-hmm. Everything is so against them, you can't help but laugh. Mm-hmm. Evil Dead, you can't help but laugh. <laughs> After Hours, you can't help mm-hmm. but laugh. Uncut Gems, not funny. No. It's actually no, like no. he is such a piece of shit uh-huh. that you are not on his side. And I, fe- fe- I wanted him to get his comeuppance because he is the orchestrator of his own demise. Mm-hmm. And I'm watching this movie and I'm thinking to myself, man... If this movie doesn't end perfectly, it's going to be such a fucking waste of time. <laughs> and then sure enough, it ends perfectly. It ends perfectly. <laughs> it's such a well, great movie. There, there comes a point in the movie where you realize, the, his character is named Howard, Howie, and you, you realize you're not on Howie's side throughout any of this, but you're rooting for him to win just so the pressure would be let off for a second. Yeah. 
You just want him to feel a little bit of relief so you can feel a little bit of relief. We, we all know what it's like to have that kind of intensity mm. and feel like everything is going wrong and you're just screwed. Mm. So we got that going for him. But we also know that he doesn't deserve to get out of this. No. In any moral universe. And, and you either want everything to come crashing down mm. so he has his moment of comeuppance or you want him to win just so we're not going through that anymore. But if he wins and if he just wins, mm. wins... What does that say about the yeah, world? Yeah. And that does, that's not great. Mm. They have a great ending. The ending even has a couple of twists within the twists. Where I was like, <laughs> oh, no, not that. Oh, oh okay. I like that. That's cool. Like, it's such a well-crafted, mm. exciting movie. I feel like the score was a little... Like a little um, too intense? Uh, no, not too intense, honestly. A little too weird and dreamy a couple of times to, to sell itself. Oh, okay. That's a minor nitpick mm-hmm. at most. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is a really, really great crime movie. A really intense motion picture. And it's easily mm-hmm. Adam Sandler's best role since Punch Drunk Love. Maybe ever. Yeah. yeah, yeah um, He's really good in this. Like, it's, I, well, I think, it's well tailored to his strengths. Uh, Adam Sandler as a comedian has always had sort of a, a, a threatening presence. He kind of he screams a lot. He's really angry a lot. Yeah, and I think uh, when you give him a role where he gets to sort of tap into that, then he gives a good performance. Punch Drunk Love. Is, he plays this wrathful man. In this one, yeah, he's he's angry a lot of the time, and he's foolish, and he makes a lot of decisions, and he seems overwhelmed, and he, he's well suited for something like that. When you give him one of those dippy dad roles, it doesn't work. He's probably yeah. he's probably just sort of a calm dippy dad in real life. Yeah, but his um, perform his his persona because he's not he's been a good actor. Mm. But he's not a versatile actor. No. He basically plays no, no. variations on you his have, persona. You have to give him a role that taps into his strengths. Otherwise, yeah. he's not going to be able to In the do case anything. of Punch Drunk Love, Paul Thomas Anderson said, okay, where does that anger come from? Mm. And it comes from a sense of extreme impotence. Mm. So let's illustrate that, and then the anger will be sympathetic. And sure enough, it was, and that movie's really good. Um, here, that anger and that frustration comes from a desperate need to be on top and in control mm. and... To, to win, even though he shouldn't. <laughs> yeah. And he's done nothing to deserve success. <laughs> I mean, he works really, really hard, but he's also constantly sabotaging his own work. Mm. So, yeah, no, it's... it's ooh. <laughs> if Adam Sandler got an Oscar nomination for this, I'd be like, fine. It'd be a little odd to say to hear the phrase, you know, Academy Award nominee Adam Sandler. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Norbit won an Oscar, so... We, why not? Well, why not? It, didn't, it didn't win, though. Didn't didn't win. I don't think Norbert won. Norbert was up for makeup, but yeah, yeah I don't think it actually. It's, won it's an Academy Award nominated film. Anyway. Nominated, yes. Yeah. Anyway, um, anyway, Uncut Gems, absolutely excellent. Make sure you mm. check it out. And because but there's it, no, it, just yeah. be prepared. Like, be prepared prepared to have some like chamomile tea waiting for you afterwards. Oh yeah, or this is not a, a this quiet is, room. This is not a this is not a breezy watch. Yeah. Even the cats got really intense just talking about it. Yeah, they're they're feeling the stress of this movie. Yeah, uh, the perfect segue, of course, mm. takes us from uncut gems to Richard Jewell. Oh, gee. <laughs> I see what you did there. Well, what can I, I thought you were going to do the flip side, you know, the, the, the panic of the Safdie brothers to the calm of Terrence Malick. No, we're doing Richard Jewell. So Richard right. Jewell is I didn't the, see Richard Jewell. Richard Jewell is the new film from Clint Eastwood. Uh, and You've he, heard of him. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's a guy. Um, and it is the true story of uh, a, a security guard who discovered a pipe bomb at a, an event in 1996, I believe. It was the Boston Marathon. No, it wasn't the Boston Marathon. It was at a oh. concert. Oh. You're thinking, oh. I think you're confusing with Patriot Day. 
Oh, maybe Fantastic. I am. Um, no, he he was in nineteen. I this was about the same event. I haven't no, seen the movie. So no, no, it's a there was a there was a pipe bomb that went off at a concert mm. in nineteen ninety six. This guy found it, took it really seriously, even though everyone told him it's probably just someone lost their backpack. Mm. Um, and although people did end up getting oh. injured and hurt, uh, he was responsible for saving a lot of lives that day. It's the Atlanta Summer Olympics. Yeah, yeah. Um, for about three days, he was a national treasure. Everybody loved him. And then the FBI started to ask questions about, okay, we need to know who did this. What if Richard Jewell did it? Yeah. Because he's kind of a nobody. Mm-hmm. He's believes in law enforcement. We've heard tale that when he was a security guard at a college, that he took the job way too seriously and made people really uncomfortable. So maybe he fits this profile of people who would fake or, God forbid, actually go through with a terrible tragedy just so that they would look good for saving people. Mm. That isn't actually what he did. They eventually end up catching the guy like ten years later. Mm. But that story leaked to the press. The press said the FBI are looking at Richard Jewell and now everyone in the country thinks he's a mad bomber. Even though he's just a guy. Mm. It's actually a really sad story. It's actually a really fucked up story about a guy who, you know, had made some mistakes in his life, but did the right thing and got really screwed over for it. Um, Clint Eastwood Mm. is, in some respects, not a subtle filmmaker and in some respects, a very subtle filmmaker. Um, He's a very, a very calm and nuanced filmmaker when his films aren't explicitly about his own personal politics. Exactly. Richard Jewell is about his own personal politics. There's a very definite, you know, anti-government oversight streak. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very much so. about the media and how it can turn, it can really turn on you when you're in the public eye. And how, how brave individuals are constantly under attack by the establishment. Exactly. Um, and uh, so, when it comes to the story, it's very, it's pretty blunt. Mm. But the storytelling is actually, for the most part, and I'm going to get to the exception here. Um, very reserved. Mm-hmm. It's very quiet. It's just a lot of acting. There's not a lot of really intense uh, pieces. It's a lot of uh, just character moments with uh, Paul Walter Hauser, who From was in Itania. Yeah, yeah, really good actor. I like mm. this guy a lot. Um, he's excellent in this, and it's him. And it's like his early uh, when he was working as a supply clerk at a law at a legal office and he mm-hmm. met Sam Rockwell who is excellent in this movie and nobody's talking about him. <laughs> uh, he ends up playing he ends up being Richard Jewell's lawyer when everything goes really bad because they mm-hmm. had a friendship earlier. Um, Kathy Bates is really great as his mom. Nice. The problem is this, as well made as this movie is, and even though I don't fully, you know, agree with Clint Eastwood's politics and watch this movie, I'm like, this is pretty well made. Okay. This is really good. The acting's good, everything's solid. The problem is this is a movie about the evils of character assassination that partakes in character assassination in order to make its point. Well, it, it, it's the whole straw man thing. Mm. Um, I, I didn't see this, but I did see Sully, Clint Eastwood's film about the, the pilot who landed a plane in, the, in a river in New York. And how that movie is about how he was attacked by sort of all the uh, aviation boards and all of the people in charge of you know making sure flights are safe. For not doing his job just correctly, even though he landed a plane safely and actually saved people's lives. Uh-huh. What's and the twist? The twist is that didn't happen. He wasn't. Sully was not attacked. He was not pilloried. He was not uh, called out for doing his job wrong. 
But Clint Eastwood, I think, connected with a story about a brave older man who was being attacked by an establishment for doing something incorrectly yeah. because the world had sort of changed around him. And I can see why a filmmaker in his late 80s might want to make movies about how it's frustrating when the world changes around you. Sure. But it feels really misguided in the sense of Sully. It feels like he's trying to sell a politic before the truth. Well, and here's... And he's not doing it to make the story more exciting. He's not altering things in little ways to sort of make it more dramatic. Mm -hmm. He's making up a story out of whole cloth in that And here's... I I, I didn't see Sully, so I can't speak to Sully, but I can speak to Richard Jewell. Uh, The biggest problem, and if I hadn't heard about this controversy before I saw it, I would have gotten the exact same thing out of it. All right. Olivia Wilde plays a reporter named Kathy Scruggs. A real uh, person, right? A real person. Right. Uh, Kathy Scruggs <clears throat> was apparently largely responsible for uh, the news story that put Richard Jewell in the public eye and, and told everyone that the FBI thought he did it. Mm-hmm. The movie portrays her getting that information from an FBI agent played by John Hamm mm-hmm. <clears throat> as bartering sex for uh, uh, mm-hmm. information. That, that's not a real thing, but uh, right, and, yeah. and even if it was a real thing, yeah. apparently that's not what happened. That's not what happened. Well, it's not like, what happened. No, but it's saying like if, with any reporter, I'm not saying yeah. I'm not saying that's literally never happened. For all mm. I know, maybe once that's happened, but apparently that is definitely not what actually happened. Mm. There has been some talk about like, oh, that's not what we meant. Yeah, watch the scene. <laughs> she, he literally says, "Yeah, I've heard." You know, I, I know how you get your stories, and then when she finally like sweet talks him into getting the story, she agrees to have sex with him right then. Mm. Like it's really gross, and then she pops up throughout the rest of the movie. Just As a villain, making, I'm sure she's a yeah. villain. She, they really turn her into this cartoonish villain mm-hmm. uh, who only cares about her career and doesn't care about the truth, except for a bit towards the end where she cries because she realizes how terrible she's been. Oh my god! Kathy Scruggs actually killed herself over this. Oh my god! She actually oh, this the, the the this and how wrong it all went and her responsibility for it and the lawsuits that that led to it led her apparently to clinical depression and then to eventually kill herself. So for the movie to take a already sad enough story, which she already had a sad enough part of, and then to commit character assassination of her isn't just a bad thing that filmmakers did. Mm-hmm. It also completely undermines any sense of integrity the film has. Yeah, well, also because the film was about the opposite of that. The film was about how people in the media have a responsibility to treat people fairly. Where's the Kathy Scruggs movie? I don't know. Why, why is Richard Jewell the subject of this? It well, sounds like that, like... Richard the, Jewell, the reporter Richard Jewell's who trying, story is trying, actually really good. It's really good, but, you know, also this notion of a reporter trying to do well and screwing up so bad that she, you know, you know unwittingly ruins somebody else's life. There's a little bit of, like, push and pull. Make it about both of them. Mm-hmm. You know how how he did something heroic, but he's not trusted. So that's his drama, it is, and, it is and she she's trying to do the best th- thing she can, going after somebody who appears incredibly untrustworthy Look, and making a bad call. I don't know her story. Yeah, I don't know her whole story because the movie doesn't give me her whole story. Yeah, the movie just yeah. gives me her as just this it, bad person it, who ruined Richard Jewell's life. It sounds like I want I want to see <laughs> hear her side of this. I I would yeah. too, very very much. And that's big controversy over here is that she's not here to defend herself. Mm-hmm. From this movie that is turning her into a really ugly plot point, which is doubly shameful because the movie's actually really good and you didn't need to make her look worse than she already looked to tell this story. You did not need that whole bit where she's going to have sex with John Hamm. Completely irrelevant to the story. 
The whole point is she got the story from a guy who shouldn't have talked out of turn before they even knew if he was their number one suspect. And that because it ended up going public, they ended up having to treat him like public enemy number one just in case they were right. Mm. And now they're trying to railroad this Richard Jewell guy who actually believes in authority. He wanted to be in law enforcement. He actually cares and he trusts the FBI to have his best interests at heart when they don't. Hmm. They're just trying to catch someone, and if it's him, great. And so he is letting himself, because of his trust of the government, basically he's letting him, he's letting them frame himself. Hmm. And Sam Rockwell is trying to prevent him from doing that because he's too trusting. And it's all about a guy who learns to trust less in order to defend himself in a complicated world. I don't agree with all of those points, but it's an expertly crafted story, except for the bit that completely <laughs> undermines the integrity of the story. And it's not even a big yeah, bit. Yeah, yeah. You could have cut it out. You could have just cut out the couple of lines of dialogue about sex, and you have the same movie, and it's fine. It's really frustrating because it's it's so weird to see a movie that is good except a, for one very specific part that is easy to cut and just is there for some reason. Changes the, the, the general tone it's, of the whole picture. Yeah, it really does. It's so fucking annoying. Or if it was one of those things where it's like Olivia Wilde, okay, I'm a reporter. Oh, you're John Hamm. Well, wow. Right. <laughs> And John Hamm, like, steps out of the shower and he's, like, toweling off or something. It's not even that. They're just at a bar talking. And she, yeah, and she gets, like, the information she needs. And, okay, okay, and now that that's out of the way, sex is on because you're John Hamm. You could have done that. Like, if it's just about John Hamm's overwhelming (coughs) sexuality. Olivia Wilde has... Some some other thing other than her getting information. Olivia Wilde has said that, based Mm. on how she was playing the character, that they were already having sex, like, before that conversation takes place. The movie does not support that. No. If that was in the movie, that was in the script, that part got cut out. Mm. I'm sympathetic because you don't know how the movie is going to turn out. Sometimes the tone can shift or the meaning can shift as the movie is edited a certain way. Mm-hmm. But this is the movie we've got. And it's incredibly frustrating because this is actually a genuinely good movie mm-hmm. that has a genuinely terrible part Ugh. that makes it not a good movie. Wow, that's a that's a pity. <clears throat> that's a pity. very annoying. It's very, very annoying. Mm. Well, tell me about... Mm. Let's let's move on from there. A movie, right. a movie that is intensely principled. Let's talk about a hidden life. A hidden life. This is the new film from Terrence Malick, and this is Malick in Super Malick mode. Oh yeah. Uh, not that he's ever not in Super Malick mode. He, he, he doesn't do sort of like director for hire stuff. Where he's like, <laughs> no. Terrence Malick's Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three. Well, t- for people who aren't I, super familiar I, with Terrence yeah. Malick, let's talk. Okay. Let's give him a bit of a primer on Terrence. Malick. Uh, Terrence Malick uh, sort of burst out on the scene. What was his first? His first big film was Badlands. Did, Badlands. He did Badlands and Days, of, Days Heaven of Heaven in the 1970s. One of the great mm. one-two punches mm. of any filmmaker. He did two masterful art house movies. Uh, one was about uh, a pair of serial killers who were uh, traveling across America, but it had a lot more to say than just serial killers mm-hmm. are bad. And uh, another one about uh, a couple in the Great Depression who decide to con uh, a rich farmer out of his money by marrying him when he's about to die. He's dying. Mm-hmm. But then, turns out he isn't dying after all. Yeah, like, yeah. love heals him, and, and uh, now they're just trapped in this horrible situation, and it's a great motion picture. Uh, Terrence Malick is an intensely emotional director. He he tells films from the heart. Uh, he is a, a student of Walt Whitman writ large. This yeah. sort of notion that your your soul is your body, and your body is your soul. 
there's a lot of really loving, beautifully photographed shots of just people experiencing nature. Yeah. Uh, then he sort of disappeared for 20 years, didn't make any movies. Yeah, uh, he did a couple of like screenplays or like mm-hmm. uncredited rewrites on things, mm-hmm. but he didn't make a new movie until The Thin Red Line in the late 90s. Was, yeah, 98 he made The Thin Red Line, and that was a World War II picture. Came out the uh, same year as Saving Private Ryan, so it didn't get quite as much attention, but it is excellent. Um, yeah, and this one's told, it's very much from the American soldier's perspective, and it's like drifts in and out of the heads of all of the soldiers. Mm-hmm. We get to hear a lot of uh, alternating inner monologues about just sort of the, the inhumanity of war and yeah. how difficult it is and how... How war, how war kind of, warps the psychology yeah, of people. It's kind yeah. of warping the souls of the people involved just by taking part. Yeah. Uh, you know, just firing a bullet is like this big existential crisis for one of the, the soldiers. And I think... Uh, Terrence Malick, in making that kind of story, is revealing just how deeply humane he is. Mm -hmm. He doesn't care about the action of war. He cares about the emotional state of the soldier. Um, I'm going on about The Thin Red Line because this is sort of a counter... uh, a companion piece to the Thin Red Line. Yeah, after because Thin this Red Line, also, he, got, he got more prolific for a while, and uh, he made a lot of different films. Well, but uh, he, it was about <clears throat> New World was his next film, and I think that was in two thousand five. Yeah, but not, not, not nearly as long a wait as it was for yeah, the last yeah. one. And New World and, was about um, yeah, colonizing mm-hmm. America. Um, then he did uh, what was the next one he did right after that? Was it To the Wonder? He did right after it wasn't the Tree. Oh, it was the Tree of Life. It was, it was Tree of Life. Yeah, Tree okay. of Life, which. Uh, sort of his masterpiece, I think, uh, mm-hmm. where he tried to tell a story of his kind of his own upbringing in Texas. And uh, so it takes place, a lot of it is like the 1950s in Texas about young boys and their very stern father and his bad relationship with his father and how that connects to evolution and God and the meaning of the universe. Yep. It's his most ambitious film, and I think it works. It's, it's very impressive. Um, may, maybe the best film of the decade, at least one of them. And uh, I think it's fair to say after Tree of Life that he kind of lost his way a little bit. To the Wonder mm-hmm. is a pretty good movie, and I think if it hadn't come right after Tree of Life, it would have been appreciated a little bit better yeah, he, about a romance that sort of collapses in front of everybody yeah. and how they feel about love and yeah, yeah love and faith are these things that kind of come and go like the tides and yeah. uh yeah it, it's touching on similar things it's kind of a footnote to tree of life i think it's still very good i, I, I do love, too i, I just think the, yeah. i just think it's one of those things like you know some people wrote off casino because it came shortly after goodfellas oh it's i like feel like to the wonder the is, kind of is better than people mm. give it credit for but mm. his next two films knight of cups and song to song mm. are not good I think Song to Song is okay. I didn't see Nine of Cups. Nine actually, of Cups yeah. is is Christian Bale wandering around looking at things, mm. and that's about it. it is so because <laughs> the whole point is that he's a Hollywood screenwriter and he's lost uh, mm. a bit of his soul and he's kind of shallow, and it's just a film exploring shallowness. Hmm. And it's too good at that, <laughs> and it doesn't. It does nothing yeah. just centered around. Like to the wonder, it centers around mm-hmm. um, uh, love. Uh, to uh, the tree of life centers around a family. Uh, Thin red line is about war. The new world is about colonization, and this is about shallow dude. Yeah. It's really doesn't. There's nothing driving it. There's nothing centering it. It doesn't work. Song to song is better. You're right, but I, I also I feel like it's kind of all over the place. And it, these are films that he, yeah. he shot without a script. Yeah, he was and, just sort of making them up. He was kind of. Ex- yeah. I think that was Terrence Malick. Who's I can tell from his films, he's kind of an old fashioned guy. Mm. Just he he appreciates you know the the rural bliss of the natural world. Yeah, and him going into an urban setting and trying to find the passion therein. 
So Song to Song is about sort of the passion found at music festivals and the glories of modern music. And If you've ever been to South by Southwest, uh, you've seen Song to Song. Yeah. And you just was, wander around, look at people, you've seen Song to Song. Just, it actually just, does capture just it. Just in, in that Malikian sort of way, yeah, everything's kind of aimless and romance is kind of aimless in this world. And he does have a point he's making. It's just not terribly profound. No, uh, and it's, it's just not centered around particularly yeah. interesting characters or, or, um, or captivating narrative. So it just kind mm. of sits there a little bit. A Hidden Life is terribly profound. Um, I think it gets to something that is very necessary. Now, as, as um, in terms of peace, pacifism, and explicitly Christianity, right. uh, he's a very religious... What's so funny about peace, pacifism, and explicitly uh, yeah, Christianity? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, nothing, as it turns out. <laughs> there's, there's no levity in this film whatsoever. But um, as his films have progressed, he has gotten sort of more explicitly religious. He's gotten more explicitly Christian. He is a Christian man. And... This uh, a hidden life is very much about living by a very specific, uh, pure version of Christian ideals, not in that evangelical sort of way. Uh, it's difficult to call this film preachy, even though it mentions well, Christianity well, it, over and over again. I, I don't. I don't think. I think there's a mistake we make sometimes. Mm. Where it is totally possible for a film to be preachy. We've all seen preachy movies where they're mm. just they're plenty all, of movies. For well, they're, say, all they're yeah. doing is this, is uh, uh, proselytizing or trying to convince you of an idea, and they don't have anything else going for it. Mm. But that's different than telling a story that is about faith or about yeah. religion yeah, yeah. or is... about a, a, or or about politics. For example, you can't tell Mr. Smith goes to Washington without politics. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You can't tell Martin mm. Scorsese's silence without religion it's, a, <laughs> it's, it's about it's, religion it, that's the plot that's the, and the plot that's the text not the subtext what terence malick is saying with a hidden life is that living by a christian principle especially in a dark time and he's of course using world war ii as a, a modern day parallel uh is one of the most difficult things you can possibly do and if you do it correctly it could destroy you but it could also build you up and the whole idea is you don't hear about those because they're hidden lives uh, it's about uh, August Diehl plays a Nazi soldier. He's fighting for the Germans, and in the battlefield, he sees how horrible it is. Not just war, but what Germany at the time is doing, that it is not a good principle to be fighting for. Uh, he lives out in the hinterlands. He lives on a farm with his wife, uh, just in a very remote part of the country. And when he comes back, he says, I, he says to his wife, I pretty much explicitly, I don't believe this anymore. This is not something I can fight for. This is nonsense. Uh, and he goes to church and realizes that Christianity is about pacifism. It's pacifist mm-hmm. philosophy. Yeah. It's, you, there's no such thing as a Christian soldier. The whole onward Christian soldiers, <laughs> it's a metaphor, guys. <laughs> You know, marching as to war, not marching to war, marching as if you are marching to war. That's just the metaphor they're going for. And as the country starts pushing further and further into fascism, and as it leaks way out and even to his remote village, the more he starts experiencing, even in this little tiny microcosm, what's going on in the rest of the country. And he starts getting oppressed because people begin to suspect, he doesn't even say it, people begin to suspect that he doesn't really believe in the German way of life any longer, that sort of Nazi philosophy. And when he's drafted, he refuses to fight, and he's thrown in prison, and it's about how he has to, even as he's suffering, stand by his principles. Yep. And how difficult that has been. He could just sign a piece of paper. He could just say, I love Big Brother, and make it all go away. But he can't. He cannot. His principles are too strong. You know, we... Uh, that is a... 
difficult, horrendous, beautiful thing to witness. Yeah. And and I'm so happy Terrence Malick is going deep here. No, and I think he needed... Mm. I, I, again, Something a little it, bit more. Uh, he needed a principle. That's more the thing. Yeah. That's the thing that Knight of Cups mm. and uh, Song, Song, Song both yeah. at, were both missing. They weren't about something specific. Mm. Um, now, human faith is not specific. It's just uh, something we can put a name on. But it is universal. It, I would argue it's to an extent it's universal. Luca, <laughs> <laughs> I, I put his bowl on a shelf so he wouldn't reach it, and he went up on the shelf. Okay, moving on. Yeah. Um, I think uh, uh, um, he, because he's telling a story about faith, because he's telling a story about a specific conflict, mm. where they could just kill him, mm. and that would be that. People keep trying to convert him. It's because yeah, it's about that is battle of ideas. Yeah, they, yeah, because his will to do the right thing mm. is a threat. Now he's not famous. Mm. There's no propaganda around him. That's why it's called a hidden life. Mm. But just by can, by reaching all of these people. Who just don't know what to do with him? He proves that there's still goodness left in the world, and that there are, there is the possibility to combat the corruption of the human soul. Yeah. And as a result, everyone he talks to who isn't his wife is basically telling him, "Just do it." And even just, his yeah. wife isn't always on board because he's making life really, really hard for them. Yeah. She she's left behind with their daughters on the yeah. farm, and she's she's yeah. people are not happy with her because mm. her her husband is a traitor. Mm. Um. I love the way this movie is photographed. Terrence Malick got really into fisheye lenses uh, <laughs> with his last couple of movies, but here it makes sense. They're in the hills, mm-hmm. and it gives you this great sense of vertigo, this yeah, great it, sense it, of height and and, it, and, and, and isolation. I, I think in the modern world, you know, there's always something close to you when you live in a city. You don't get sort of this idea of a vast vista. And I think, mm-hmm. yeah, he's trying to capture that, that experience that of stepping out of a small cramped place and putting it in a bigger one. Um, yeah, this, this idea that pacifism is something to die for Hmm. is a very admirable thing. There are a few things to die for in this world. And I think refusing to fight for a cause you don't believe in is important. And, like refusing to in, kill, refusing to kill, yeah. and uh, the, and even and they're even offering him the, like you could work in the uh, hospital and that would be fine. And he was like, "Do I have to take a lo- loyalty oath to Hitler?" And they're like, "Yeah, you you do." And he's like, "Well, then no." And it's, now it, you could say that it's kind of taking the easy way out morally because as mo- a modern audience, we're not on Hitler's side. Hitler's a monster. We understand sort of the context of this, uh, and. I think it's important to have that context just so we have a a stronger moral stance as to what's going on. Mm -hmm. But I think it also can be put out to modern-day pacifists. People who don't stand for war. People who aren't looking for combat. People who aren't looking for violence. And give them a a sort of a historical context for their own feelings. Uh, It is... Difficult to remain principled, yeah, especially in the modern world. Well, and, 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 and well, and, in any world, really, uh, it's right. always been difficult to remain principled. Right. No, that's. I think that's. And, the, I think and, it's something that they show you here because mm. you know nowadays we're constantly hit by constant distractions. Even in a simpler time mm. where you live in a very very small community, very isolated, even then mm. it is extremely hard not to to go against the pack just because you think it's morally wrong to do what everyone else is doing. Mm. So. He's kind of basically get, saying there's no goddamn excuse. Yeah, yeah. That's what this movie is saying. There's no excuse. 
to know what the right thing is and do what's convenient instead. Mm-hmm. He's just saying and it outright, and there's something intensely noble about that. I I feel like uh, this is sort of the correct way of doing uh, that film Hacksaw Ridge from a couple years ago. Uh, Mel Gibson directed that one, and that was a, mm-hmm. a, a film about a soldier who was a conscientious, conscientious objector. Mm-hmm. He also lived by his Christian principles, and he refused to fight. But that film still got to have its big balls-to-the-wall battlefield the, action sequence. It's called Hacksaw Ridge. Yeah. The, people get messed up in that yeah, movie. It's super-duper violent, yeah. and it's trying to tell a story about uh, pacifism and consci- being a conscientious objector. But that guy still wants to serve the war effort. He still feels that war yeah. is a noble he, he, thing. He enlisted. He enlisted. He he still feels that the war effort is noble, but he's a pacifist. And A Hidden Life is trying to sort of confront that idea. That, no, if you <laughs> don't believe in war, don't fight in any capacity. Yeah. And that's something that mm. we just we, we always think to ourselves because it's our generation, it's our lives mm. that we're the exceptions. Yeah, of course, war war is bad. Everyone agrees war is bad. Mm. But this war, but of, of course, it's peace for four. This is yeah. war to end all war. Yeah, 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 yeah. This this war is important. This one's fine. Okay, look, I know, I know, I know. They're doing these terrible things, and uh, they've set up camps along the border. But in this specific context, mm-hmm. it's it's okay now. Yeah. And of course, it's not. Mm. It's not okay at all. It's a complete morally reprehensible thing. Mm. There's, and I think it's interesting that we're seeing this resurgence of World War II movies and movies about morality that basically say, in historical context, morality is pure and simple, mm-hmm. and you just do the goddamn right thing. Mm-hmm. Here's what I'll say about a hidden life. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna make one critique of a hidden life. Okay. It's a bit long. Yeah, it, it is three hours long. It's three hours long, and I was feeling it after a bit, mm-hmm. and I do feel like I understand that the length supports the endurance test. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, I was going to mention yeah, that point. Doing the right thing isn't something you do once and then it's easy. It's, it's really, really hard, and he has to keep doing it for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. So the movie illustrates that, but at the same time, pacing is a thing, and I think maybe it could have been trimmed a little. Maybe a little. I, I, I did feel its length, but yeah, to... to to just back up what you just said, uh, I think the idea of persistently doing it and continuing to do it and continuing to have to do it and to say it mm-hmm. uh, is uh, it's important to illustrate and it's important to feel that. And I think the length uh, goes to to bring that point in. Right. The objection I have is the wife character. Oh yeah, um, I, I like that she sort of understood that this was about principles. But at the same time, and that she was also having trouble, but I didn't sense maybe enough indignation from her. I feel like she, in compared to the August Deal character, might have been slightly underwritten. Well, because here's, you gotta realize, mm. she, what's expected of her is very different. She's not expected to be drafted. Well, that's true. So she's going through this in a different context. He has a more immediate decision mm. to make. So... And I'm not saying that his journey is better or worse or more difficult or easier, mm-hmm. but I feel like his situation is portrayed as slightly different, mm-hmm. and so he looks at it a slightly different way. Um, that being said, yeah, I, I can see what you're getting at here, and I, I think um, I think when you're looking at a situation where, hey, if we don't completely change our principles, mm-hmm. we could all be murdered by our friends. Yeah. I think, man, that's a that's a lot to go through from anyone's <laughs> anyone's perspective. That's a lot. Yeah, that's uh, that's d- tough, man. D- d- song to song, and I guess also Night of Cups, notwithstanding, uh, 
Terrence Malick tends to tends to deal with larger ideas, bigger ideas of of actual morality and strength of character. And I feel like not enough filmmakers go that far. Yeah, uh, they're just sort of concerned with story more than the idea behind the story, and or maybe they are concerned with the idea, but you know, plot usually takes uh, mm-hmm. takes precedence in American film. And I, I'm always relieved when Terrence Malick comes along because I know he's going to try to dig deep. And whether or not he is hugely successful, uh, you said that uh, 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 To the Wonder is a little bit just sort of going back to the same well. He's telling a similar story mm. a similar way. I don't think that's a bad thing, mm. but it was maybe a little repetitive yeah. to come oh. right after a similar film. So oh. I don't think people appreciate it. I, I, I said this at the time because I called To the Wonder the best film of that year. I think it was 2013, that movie. Was it really number 2012. One? Yeah, I think it was my number one okay. that year. Well, right. um, I would rather see Terrence Malick uh, spinning his wheels than watch... You know, some you know Michael Bay repeating himself. You know, you know? I, there's something we complain about, like oh, they're just doing the same thing over and over again. But then when we look back over someone's career, having a consistent through line mm. of of thematic and uh, even visual motifs mm. is really interesting. And not every filmmaker wants or is even inclined to mix it up every single time they make a movie. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I'm not going to be too judgy if filmmakers approach the same subject over and over again. That's they're fine. Cl- they clearly have a point to make and I- an idea to yeah. sell. And I'm fine with them. Okay, like- look, just look at The Irishman. You re-examine it over the course of your life and you come up with different takeaways mm-hmm. from similar people or similar situations. I'm fine with that. Doesn't mean they're all good. <laughs> but this is a very, very good one. It's I don't think it's his very best, but it's it's... Quite excellent, and it's definitely worth seeing. Yeah, for sure. Please, please, I, I would say go out of your way, because this is one yeah. of my favorite films of the year. Awesome. Um, what did you think of the new film, Bombshell? Uh, this is by Jay Roach. Who sure did, is. Uh, who did Boston uh, Powers. Yeah, but he also did a lot of TV Alaska, movies for, yeah. uh, for HBO about politics and things. Oh, okay. uh, yeah, this is about the uh, story of uh, Megyn Kelly... Um, Gretchen Carlson. Gretchen Carlson and a, a, a third one who is not a, an actual newscaster. Uh, but the women the, the, of Fox the, the News. Women, the women who, of Fox News yeah. who, uh, in the run-up to the Donald Trump uh, presidency, uh, Fox News was uh, revealed to be this completely toxic environment where the president, Roger Ailes, uh, had been taking advantage and sexually assaulting women in exchange for career favors for many, 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 many years. Uh, Roger Ailes was a total scumbag. Uh, he is expertly played by John Lithgow in this movie. Really good performance. Really yeah. good performance by John Lithgow. I'm kind of surprised that Charlize Theron and John Lithgow aren't getting more attention from like the awards bodies. I feel like Charlize Theron and Margot Robbie are mm. being uh, basically the focus of the awards mm. for this movie. But yeah, John Lithgow is really excellent. This movie, I'm going to say this right now, mm. this movie is going to win the Academy Award for Best Makeup. For sure, just the for ma- that, just for the Roger Ailes oh, alone. Oh yeah. no, I don't think I don't think so. I think it's for Charlize Theron. Charlize Theron does not look like Megan um, Megan Kelly. Megan Kelly, yeah. sorry, she's not looking Megan Kelly. They, she they does in this movie though. She yeah. doesn't look dissimilar, but she doesn't look like her. There are, I'd say, the majority of the shots in this movie. Mm-hmm. If you had told me we actually just swapped out Megan Kelly for that shot, I would have uh, been like, I believe it. Yeah, they uh, just made people look like yeah. who they looked like. It's uh, really incredible work. Margot Robbie plays a character named Kayla Pospisil, so just to to give give mm-hmm. them credit. And this is about how uh, these women are in this ultra-conservative environment where the men is, are supposed to be completely in charge. And Fox News uh, in the conservative establishment is seen as... I mean, it's... 
they're the central carriers of that philosophy. Yeah. They're the ones who are, they're one of the most successful news networks around. They are one of the only ones to sell this extreme right wing point of view. It's, they sell themselves as sort of a balance to what they perceive to be a liberal bias in media. Mm -hmm. Uh, What they've really been selling is this idea that a conservative opinion is just as valid as any other facts that any other news outlet might have. Yeah. Um, Opinion versus fact, your opinion is more important. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And that's something Roger Ailes has actively said. He's on the record saying that sort of thing. This is not just any kind of, like, political bias. Uh, And it is about how these women have to sort of traverse during this rise of Donald Trump and this kind of extreme push even further to the right of this right-wing establishment, Mm -hmm. uh, how they're trying to get Roger Ailes' crimes brought to light in any kind of significant way without being destroyed themselves. Right, because they talk Um, a lot about how, where do you go mm -hmm. if you're a conservative newscaster ultra conservative newscaster who keep on who say and they say this over and over again i'm not a feminist yeah yeah yeah. Mm. but you're an ultra conservative newscaster and what happens if you piss off fox news where do you go Uh it's not a lot of options anymore Mm. and the movie goes out of its way to illustrate that a lot where even just working at fox news can make you unhirable at other places because it basically implies that Mm. you ascribe to an ethos that other news Mm. stations don't ascribe to yeah and, and in fact, uh, there is uh, a really fascinating character played by Kate McKinnon in this character, who is uh, in this uh, film. In this, sorry, in this film. Yeah, uh, who plays uh, Kayla's son of cubicle mate, uh, Jess Carr. Jess Carr, and she is lesbian, and she has to keep that completely secret. Working at Fox News, it turns out she doesn't believe in any of the Fox News ethos. It's just a job to her. Mm-hmm. And now she is unhirable elsewhere, so yeah. she's just kind of stuck she, in the Fox. She's hole. a secret Democrat, where yeah. she applied to every news station. Fox mm-hmm. is the only place that hired her, and now she can't get hired anywhere yeah. else. She's having an affair with Kayla, or at least does at the beginning of the movie, and then they kind of forget about Kayla's sexuality for the rest of the movie. She becomes sort of Kayla's confidant. And when things get really bad for Kayla, uh, Kate McKinnon's the only person she can call. Yeah. But they're, they don't really address... Like, she says she's not a lesbian at the beginning, but... <clears throat> so is she bisexual? Mm-hmm. Where, is she where still is figuring this? out her, her yeah, identity? Her, yeah. her, her sexual identity does not become a plot point, and I think that's really frustrating. Well, it is because they bring, they bring it up. They bring, they, they bring, it, up, they bring so it up and then they drop it again, which yeah. is really frustrating. And in fact, the frustrating thing about this movie is how it kind of refuses to address the entire atmosphere that Fox News is creating and how it sort of allowed this sort of thing to persist. It treats it as if it's this kind of closed-off scandal with just Roger Ailes. And doesn't... I think it kind of assumes that we know a lot about Fox News going in rather than delving into the rise of that ethos and how it has kind of allowed for this atmosphere where women can just sort of be mistreated. Yeah, well, it's very insular, and they mm. talk about that. It's a, it's an echo chamber of ideas. Mm. You're not allowed to even, like, say what other shows on Fox News are doing sometimes. Mm. You just it's, Everything is very contained. And also that there are specific rules of behavior that wouldn't make sense if you were just visiting, but because you live there, you get used to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and we've all, we've all sadly either seen or at least read about offices with that kind of atmosphere and mm-hmm. how completely suffocating they can be and how dangerous they can be. Uh, specifically to women. Especially uh, to yeah, women, this, yeah. this is uh, not just to women, but specifically to women, where yeah. uh, women go into these sort of very masculine workplaces and the men are ascribing themselves to uh, 
there's no better term for it, the bro code, yeah. where they have risen to the ra- risen through the ranks specifically so they can do immoral things. Right. They, they should be allowed to have people look the other way, and Roger Ailes lived that philosophy. This, this is an interesting double feature with A Hidden Life, because A Hidden mm. Life is all about living by principle by no matter what happens to you. Mm. The issue of principles is actually very much at play in Bombshell, because... What we see, especially with Megyn Kelly, mm-hmm. and again, I don't know the, all the true story in this one, I just know what's in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, she was sexually assaulted by Roger Ailes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the, ti- in the timeline of the movie, it was like years before. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, and when all of this starts to come out, what, she has a couple of options. She could say nothing. Mm-hmm. She could say something right away. And what she s- decides to do is play it extremely safe. Mm-hmm. And just make sure that she would not be the only one. So she starts doing this whole investigation, mm. trying to find out as much as she can. And by the mm. time she actually gets involved, it might be kind of too late to save her soul yeah. on this. And that's something that they touch, but they don't really mm. get into the meat of that. Yeah. They don't really get into... On some respects, this is basically just like kind of a boardroom thriller, where everyone's yeah, just wandering around an office talking about their stuff. And I actually, like, I got a great sense of specific place out of this. Hmm. The performances are pretty much uniformly excellent. I oh, really yeah, did yeah. think everyone it's, brought their A-game to it. There's also a lot of just fun little cameos by people you might recognize. John Lithgow's great as Roger Ailes, but then when you get to see who's playing Rupert Murdoch, ooh, that's exciting. <laughs> who's playing Rudy Giuliani? He's in the movie, too. And that, that's like sort of like a fun who's who game, but... That undercuts, I think, a lot of the seriousness of what's going on. The, the movie's opening feels like they were mm. trying to go for the same vibe as uh, The Big Short and mm. Vice. This is not made by the same filmmaker. Right. Uh, those were made by Adam McKay. Some people think Vice went way too far with that whole, let's jazz it up and make modern history fun. Uh, I think it was fun. Actually, I, I like Vice. I, I think Vice is extremely broad and maybe mm. to a fault, but I do think it mostly works. Here, they start out that way, mm. and there's a couple of playful bits like in the middle where people turn to the camera or there's some uh, cute camera trickery but it feels like they're just trying to jazz up a made for tv movie and they never quite really push it to the point where it is thoughtful intense or even like yeah even just dramatically Mm. uh, a big enough to warrant this a-level treatment like uh, when the movie was ending i thought we were about to finally about to kick into the third act yeah. I was like, yeah, oh, okay, cool. So now everything's going to, like, it's, oh, that's it's, it. It's like 100 minutes, and you think there's going to be, like, some sort of. Uh, because a lot. this is all the background of the Donald Trump administration. He's mm-hmm. in office. You think it's going to be really sort of timely in making this broader concept about what Fox News is doing to modern politics. Uh, no matter how you voted, no matter what your political stance is, you should know what's going on in what is more or less the rights, for lack of a better term, propaganda machine. Yeah. And. There's no comment on that. I think it's something Jay Roach and the filmmakers think we perhaps already feel, so he's not making that point explicit. But I don't think he's, as a filmmaker, I don't think he should be taking that for granted. Here's, I think he needs to be making more of a point. There's a, there's a thing, I appreciate one thing this movie does, which is mm. it takes these people, and they even have bits like uh, Megyn Kelly's whole bit about how Santa Claus is just white. I'm sorry, kids, that's it. I'm like, we, you made, we, we, what? Coca-Cola made up that version of Santa Claus a hundred years ago. It's not a thing. Um, So they talk a bit about that. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, this movie actually has an extreme respect uh, for these, especially these women, because they're the protagonists, Mm -hmm. especially for their intelligence. Yeah. And how they're not just being pushed around by a system. They're trying to navigate Mm -hmm. a really complicated world 
uh, that ascribes to their ethos mm-hmm. as best they can. And I actually have a lot of respect for how the film appreciates and, and doesn't use, it doesn't turn them into sort of cartoonish figures the way that Vice did to like Donald Rumsfeld. Yeah. Where that's okay. Donald Rumsfeld is a bizarre person in a lot of ways, but the way Steve Carell played him kind of gave me an excuse not to take him seriously. And it probably should be <laughs> because yeah. he had a major impact on yeah, things. Yeah. So that's why I think Vice maybe overplayed its hand. So, no, no that's, that's fair. I, I think, whatever, it's, mm. You could say he killed it or not. It's, mm. I think it's an issue, but here, I appreciate all the respect that they have uh, for for these women, but I'm not entirely sure who this movie is made for, mm-hmm. because you have to get people who are highly critical of Fox News, who are also willing to cheer on people who, who are deeply responsible for promoting really far-right ideology, some of which is incredibly negative, and they got Trump elected. So you want people who don't like Fox News, but really love Fox News. Yeah. That's your target demo for this. I don't know who this is who this is gonna really hit. Yeah. It's, it's, I don't think conservatives it, it are gonna like watch this and go, yeah, take down that Fox yeah. News. Wait, no, shit. Oh wait, I but I support the it's, Wait, it's, shit, what it's do I do deep, here? It's a deeply political movie that uh, is not, not being political enough, frankly. I don't know I, I don't know if picking a side mm. would have made it better. I don't know if mm. going out of your way to be as sort of Kubrickian and objective as possible might have been a better approach and not mm. really dealt. I don't I don't know. It's, but it's I don't too, it's too modern for that. It's yeah. right up right up to the present. Yeah, and, I don't know what you do here. I don't mm. know what the solution is for this movie other than this is probably as good as this was going to get, especially with a male director. I would have yeah, loved to have seen what someone like Mariel Heller would have done with this material. Oh, there you go. You know, yeah. maybe would have actually gotten mm. a more specific perspective rather than mm. trying to find space for the bro code. Right. As much as this movie does. Mm. Like, eh. There's a scene near the end where it's just a bunch of bros in a room talking about how they're going to deal with this. And, yeah. and it, unfortunately, that scene doesn't provide the reckoning you're looking for. Yeah. Uh, and and it do, and it doesn't feel play like a dark tragedy either. It's just sort of that's what happened. It's a little bit too pat yeah. in its relation of events, rather than having a little bit more of a broader point. It's simultaneously yeah. interesting and boring. Yeah, which is yeah, really <laughs> weird. It's an interesting conversation. I do think it's an interesting film to watch, mm-hmm. and I think the performances alone make it probably worth watching to a lot of people. But. It's an odd film in a lot of ways, and mm-hmm. I think it's going to be something we want to re-examine mm-hmm. later down the line. Well, but speaking, it's an interesting... <laughs> speaking of uh, misogyny and uh, yeah. taking on the bro code... Another good segue. <laughs> I'm very curious. I'm very, very, very curious what you thought of Black Christmas, because you only just saw it today. I, I saw it t- this morning, so I haven't had a lot of time to, to sort of sit with the new Black Christmas. Okay, so the new uh, Black Christmas, uh, the original Black Christmas, came out in 1974, mm-hmm. directed by Bob Clark, who also directed A Christmas Story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is... A Christmas Story, to remind you is a deeply cynical movie. <laughs> it's, it's not supposed to be a warm Christmas classic, yet here we are. Black Christmas, uh, the original Black Christmas starred uh, Olivia Hussey mm-hmm. and um, Margot Kidder mm-hmm. and uh, Cara DeLay, and it is great. It is a great mm-hmm. early slasher, very classy, very stylized, very smart, has a lot of interesting points to make in addition to just being scary as hell. Somehow, mm-hmm. 
even though, I mean, it wasn't a huge hit when it came out, but it was very well respected. And it's it, 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 it never led to a franchise. You think it would have been a Black Christmas two in the eighties? Isn't that something that they would have just done? The, I mean, they they resurrected Psycho. Why not Black yeah, Christmas? Yeah, right. It's so, um, weird that they the never movie. did that. So it kind yeah, of Black went Christmas, dormant for a while. It, well, I mean, it, it came out in the nineteen seventies before like horror films were the big business that they became in the nineteen eighties. But so, in the nineteen eighties, so it would have been on home video. People would have been exploring it. It, it was it was too too much time had passed. It was nineteen seventy four. So by the time that sort of boom came out in the early 1980s, yeah, like, people had essentially forgotten Black Christmas. Over the years, it's regained its cult following, I would say rightly so. Uh, because I don't I think, think it's, it's cult. I think it's just generally considered just a horror a, yeah, classic. It's just a horror classic now. now, and it's really, really terrific. I didn't see the first remake. That oh, they Black Xmas. Which they had to rebrand as Black Xmas because there was too much confusion on video store shelves. Uh, I saw so it. It the, came the, out in 2006. and stars uh, Michelle Trachtenberg mm-hmm. and Lacey Chabert. And, um, and I confuse it with the remake of Sorority, House and Sorority Row. Um, which and, is a better movie than Black Black Xmas. Scream too. Um, Black Xmas is sloppy. Right. Um, it's not very well thought out. It <clears throat> very clearly was the victim of a lot of reshoots. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not unentertaining. Mm-hmm. It's pretty shallow, and it's just kind of a, a, a slasher retread. Uh, but it's got a lot of weirdness in mm-hmm. it. Like, uh, when the bad guy, like, when Billy, the, the killer, uh, carves out gingerbread men and people's skin and serves them up as cookies. No. Like, it's so gross. That's kind of fun, I guess. It's it's so gross that you kind of just be like, you know what, I know this is stupid, but Hmm. I'm with you for a bit. What what have you... (laughs) So you watch it, and it's, like, not quite as bad as you'd think it is, but it's also not good either. Yeah. The original was uh, a very explicitly feminist movie. It was about... uh, It came in... We actually discussed this recently on our Christmas uh, episode, Christmas list of the best Christmas movies episode. And uh, we discussed that it came shortly after uh, Roe v. Wade in America, uh, even though it's a Canadian film. But you pointed out, and I didn't know this. Uh, Someone uh, had to point that that to me as well. There there was uh, similar legislation in Canada as well, like a few years before Roe v. Wade. But it's very much about the same thing. Yeah. About how uh, dudes are freaking out because women now have a right to get an abortion. And how that is sort of leading to this sort of weird psychic break in a lot of these misogynistic where, men. Where they can no longer control yeah, the they women. they control and, the women. And, and by the end of the film, mm-hmm. uh, I, the film kind of makes mm-hmm. the argument, the original film, uh, that a boyfriend who is trying to, in a very misogynistic way, try to control his girlfriend mm-hmm. is functionally just as scary as the killer, and there's a lot mm-hmm. of, there's some confusion in that yeah. regard, and... It's a pretty clear point. It's pretty clear. Um, uh, this new Black Christmas, who I think, full disclosure, we need to mention that we've we've talked to one of the screenwriters. Uh, April Wolf is mm-hmm. just a friend of ours on Twitter. She's not like a close personal friend. No, I don't of have ours, her phone but, number yeah. or nothing, but we did a podcast with we her. We did a podcast with her, so yeah. take take that as you will. But I, I think we can still talk about I, it. I feel yeah. comfortable talking about this movie mm-hmm. and its pros and cons. But uh, yeah. this film uh, taps into a lot of uh, that and puts it in the modern context of sort of college rape culture and uh, how feminism is trying to push through it in modern rape modern rape culture on a lot of college campuses. Yeah. It takes place on a college campus. Imogen Poots uh, lives in a sorority house with her sorority sisters. One of them looks an awful lot like Olivia Hussey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, uh, I, I, I'm sure that's deliberate. Well, or uh, a happy coincidence. Uh, Imogen Poots is playing a college student. Never mind that she is thirty and looks thirty, but uh, well, it's a movie. I it's, it's that. a movie. It's just one of the things. She that she, she she started college a little late. <laughs> she took she took like, she took a couple of years off. Okay, anyway, but she's uh, a grad student. What if she's just a grad student? That's a thing. You can be a grad student in a sorority, right? I, I don't think so. I think once you're really? yeah, I think once you're out of the the. Nah, nah, nah. 
the bachelor program. I don't know anything. You know, about, I actually don't know about. I don't know anything about the Greek system at all. All I know is what yeah. I saw in movies, and most of that's probably bullshit. I did try to join a sorority once. Okay. Uh, just sort sort of on a goof. Um, I, I didn't want. I knew I didn't want to be in a fraternity. It just wasn't something that appealed to me. Uh-huh. I just wanted to study. I didn't need you know sort of the the frat house. But I thought, hey, what if I can sort of confront the Greek system in this sort of asshole nineteen year old way? Because I was an asshole nineteen year old. I have a girly name. What if I just put my name on the form? Will they accept me? Can I just show up on pledge day? Hey, thanks for making me one of the sisters and just be a complete dick about it. Yeah, you're a complete dick. It certainly was when I was nineteen. Okay, I'm gonna make no no qualms about. Are you sorry about that now? That's kind, of a, that's kind of a dick thing. Well, I mean, nothing came of it. I just signed yeah. up. Okay. And I wasn't going to try to prank the whole system and, like, insist on my way and try to push my way into a sorority. I, okay. I didn't care either one way. It was just sort of a little... All right. I filled out a form. That's all I did. Okay. So nothing... nothing. The form wasn't even accepted? No. That, oh, okay. I, I never got a call. I just right. thought, wouldn't that be funny if I signed up for a sorority? Oh, okay. I thought you were... I thought you went through a whole thing. No. Oh, okay. All right. All right. That's that's not... No. Still a dick move. I'm a dick enough to fill out a form. I'm not dick enough to insist on my way. Okay. Good. So yeah, I don't know about the Greek system. Anyway, Imogen Poots uh, is uh, it's established early on as the survivor survivor of a sexual assault. Uh, her assaulter ha- was let free because nobody believed her. Mm-hmm. Uh, all, all too frighteningly common on college campuses. Mm-hmm. And he is back in town, and, and yeah, everyone expects in her town. to deal with it and get over it. Uh, she, uh, her sorority sister let me look up the actress's name because she's actually really quite good oh uh chris yeah chris yeah, played by elise shannon is the actress's she's name. great she's really really great and she uh is uh, an activist she wants to confront a lot of these toxic things that are going on on campus uh her current crusade is against uh carrie elwes who plays this very harold bloom like professor mm. Uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Harold Bloom, the actual literary critic. He died recently. Uh, and he promoted this idea of... Uh, he, he promoted the idea of there being sort of a literary canon. And he was very keen on the canon. He was very insistent that people read. He was insistent that people read the classics. He was actually a champion of high literature, which I really appreciate. But he also had a lot of, let's call them controversial things to say, about how the canon is kind of immutable and that college campuses need to focus more on the typical white guy books and maybe not open up the canon to new voices and new kinds of literature. Which is stupid. Which is dumb. Yeah, yeah. That, that that was the du- the dumbest thing Harold Bloom said. Uh, but yeah, I, know, I is, can't speak to it. That's all I know. Okay, yeah, I've read some Harold Bloom. Okay, I'm not super intimately familiar with Harold Bloom, but I've read some of his his criticism. Okay. Uh, but yeah, Carrie Elwes is sort of promoting this idea that yes, we're going to teach these books about great old men because that's high lit, and you know. I, I shouldn't have to include X, Y, and Z just because these things are still great, and I only have so much time. And uh, the uh, Elise Shannon character is trying to protest that in a really, really, really awkward bit of ADR. We're also given sort of a little bit... Like, there's an overhead shot. The characters' mouths aren't moving, but we're getting a lot of exposition. Yeah. So there's actually a lot of moments of this where they kind of have to cover a lot with ADR. Mm. It's actually... Kind of sloppily made, unfortunately. Well, it was it was it's, written, directed, produced, and done post for in about eight months. Yeah, from it, conception it, to theaters, really it, running good. It, it, really it fast. feels pretty rushed, and yeah. unfortunately, it does show. It's it's not as tight as it could be. As if they had more time to shoot and light and, and make it sort of more professional looking. It feels kind of amateurish. Mm-hmm. Well, it feels but like an eighty slasher, right? Uh, yeah, I guess they were so, all that, um, that fast and cheap. Uh, so. Um, 
but yeah, it's also revealed that there's this weird kind of culty thing that's going on with the the men on campus, mm-hmm. uh, just sort of given in this sort of throwaway line of dialogue. And, and they are Perry and- Ellis may be part of it, mm-hmm. and how it all stems from the founder of the school. Uh, I think his name was Calvin Hawthorne, who. Uh, who might have? Who was definitely a misogynist? Owned slaves mm. in the North, they say. Yeah, they make and a big deal. Was, out of he was, that. Yeah, is this racist misogynist, horrible asshole, and we're kind of living in the in his shadow. Yeah, and a lot of uh, and a lot of the the men yeah. on campus want mm. to keep that alive, while all the women on campus mm. don't, for obvious mm. reasons. And over the course of they, the they, Christmas they, holiday, mm. uh, various members of Imogen Poots and Elise uh, Shannon's sorority start disappearing, mm. and of course, we see them get murdered by men in cloaks. Mm. But, yeah, they're, they're being attacked by a mysterious cadre of men on campus. There, there's a character who appears in two scenes. She's my favorite thing in the movie. Oh, she's the one who's talking about Ham? Uh, no, not the one who's talking about Ham. That's my favorite. She's awesome. The, the one who rushes in and says, oh, my God, I lost my D-cup. It's like, how do you lose a D-cup? She says, very, or like, very gingerly, and <laughs> charges out of the room with all the confidence in the world. It's like, come on, follow her. I love she's all, great. All, of the, all the characters mm-hmm. at the sorority are given a lot of personality with just a couple of lines. There's one person, I, I, I've, I hope I'm remembering who it is. I want to say it was Lily Donahue, but I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. Uh she, they're making ham for like mm. Christmas break, mm. and she's just like, I, I didn't know it was so easy to make ham. I just put it in the oven. Is that enough? <laughs> I, 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 I could be making ham this whole time. <laughs> like she's just young she's and like, just realizing just like just people, like yeah. how easy it is to like, take care of yourself, and yeah, it's really humanizing and cool. There's a really good conversational quality to the screenplay. Thank you, April Wolf. Uh, that and, I, and I, Sophia Tikal who and, and Sophia Tikal they they co-wrote it together, and I think it's it's really tightly written script in terms of its characters. All of the characters have a lot of personality in the few things they say. There's a, a good conversational quality to the dialogue. I think it's a little over-directed and I think the actors are trying to bring a lot of emotional heft when I think it would have gotten a lot more strength if they kind of had thrown off a lot of the dialogue. I think, I think Imogen Poots gets mm. like a lot of the emotional heavy lifting here. There's mm. a great bit with her and a security guard. Where yeah, he refuses yeah, to believe that one of her sisters is missing, and you can tell this is exactly what she went through when she mm. reported her assault. And, and that that scene is played very that well, but there's great. a lot of scenes where she, I think, she could just sort of throw off dialogue, where there's a, instead a close. When I was, you're um, right. There's there's sloppy mm. elements to the production, and that that but, is frustrating. But I do think that's kind but, of in keeping with the yeah. slasher mold. For me, what they eventually reveal, though, I think outstrips a lot of its problems. Well, yeah, mm. I, I, we'll we'll talk vaguely a little bit about the third act. I want to talk about the way the characters sort of communicate in mm. here because. When I was watching Black Christmas, and for and again, I think this is in many respects an above average slasher. Yeah, that's that's fair. That, I think there's it's certainly got personality, and I mm-hmm. actually like the overall visual look of the film. I think they have some clever kills. There's a fun homage to Exorcist Three, which I appreciated, um, and there's some creativity oh, here. Was, the, I noticed that. There and was an homage and, to and I think the cast three. is rock solid, but I think in many respects this is a somewhat conventional slasher with some good ideas and some wild ideas that don't really work. Okay. Well, but but what I really glommed onto uh-huh. was the way that the characters communicated with each other because I feel like it's been too long since we have updated the way young people talk in movies. We get kind of locked into a system. I remember when Scream came along, and all of a sudden people were like, oh, do people talk about movies and pop culture a lot? Mm. Yes! <laughs> yes, they do. And well, now when you're watching... Was, in the mid-90s, that was coming out in films like Clerks as well. They sort of... The, the, new, the, conver- the tone of the conversation had changed, and movies took a little while to but, catch But up. those were like indie movies. Scream yeah. was like this mainstream genre thing. And it all was this- not, not at the time. No. It, it became a big hit, but it was 
wasn't supposed to be. It was, a, but my point is, it was a horror movie. It yeah, wasn't. It, was, it wasn't it was, made it was for the of, Sundance crowd. That's true, but it was. Point. It was from uh, Miramax, so it wasn't like, right. yeah, it wasn't like a big Paramount or Disney film. No, but it was. It was. Listen, it was. A like it was a Disney, Disney film. Anyway, Disney on Miramax. My, my point is this: when Scream came out, and all of a sudden people are like, "Oh, I, I know people who talk like that. I talk like that." Yeah. When I'm watching Black Christmas, I realize that I know people. All, all over the world, thanks to Twitter. But I know, and, and like YouTube, and but also just people I know personally, who actually talk directly about politics. Mm. Why? Because it's really fucking relevant right now. Because we're in a, we're in a deeply political time, and yeah. people. I, I noticed this about Booksmart. Yeah, actually, yeah, uh, Booksmart book yeah. was one that was really trying to pay attention to the way young people are communicating now and how. It all, is all very intensely political, and yet there's a lot of humor and character and wit yeah. to this intensity of politics. So yeah, Booksmart yeah. and Black Christmas both have that vibe, where mm. people, they're intelligent protagonists who care about things, who talk about issues that are relevant to them, not because necessarily every single one of those things has to do with the plot, although in this mm. case they do, because it's a story about men who hate that women are beginning too political. Mm. Um, but... To just have that be so fresh and open and have it be funny and have it speak to character and have it not be we're pausing the movie for a speech mm. was really organic and nice. And I like that more than I like the slasher elements. I think yeah, it's, it yeah. feels very modern. It feels very contemporary. Well, the, the actual like like physics of the slasherness is a, a little bit goofy to yeah me. it's like part of the movie is trying to be like very realistic in the way people interact but mm. the actual slasher bits are get really kind of goofy yeah, sometimes yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, like a lot of slasher movies they, do. They, they they reveal sort of like where the violence is coming from and it's like a big twist and it, it's yeah silly I don't, uh, I don't think it works not, not, I, I think the, I think the, the third act mm. undermines the point of the film a bit without going into detail and ruining it mm. I think it lets too many people off the hook uh, I, I understand why you would say that, but I appreciate that it's it's essentially a movie about how we are evolving politically. Young people especially are evolving politically. The way they're speaking about politics is changing, and there's been this horrendous backlash from assholes. And I like that this is about – this movie is very explicitly about that interplay mm. between uh, growth in one direction and backlash from another. And you look at the country, this is a very much a comment as to what's going on uh, on sort of different sides of the political spectrum. It's a very aware film. Um, it's, I guess you could call it a woke film, although that's not a term I like to bandy about too much. I feel like, people I feel are, like it's people misused to, a lot. I feel um, like people are turning that into exclusively a pejorative. Yeah. And I, yeah. Don't, I, don't, I think it's just basically, hey, you have empathy? Mm. Cool. That's it. Well, also... That's all, that's all we're talking about, really. You know, maybe we'll, if we just say awakened. Well, yeah, that would, <laughs> be, opposed to that woke, would be grammatically then, yeah. correct, yeah. Uh, it, it does have an awakened viewpoint, and... I appreciate that it is trying uh, to address something very immediate, and you can t you can tell that although it was made in a sloppy fashion, that was done in service of trying to be really up to date. Yeah, and that I can appreciate. Well, I, I miss like when you think about a lot of the great slashers, or even just the weird slashers that we enjoy from the eighties. They people weren't putting a level production into most of them. They were kind oh, of off no. the cuff. When you think about like all the Jason movies out there, most mm -hmm. of them are weird. If you really <laughs> think about it, remember, remember like sixth film, all of a sudden he's a zombie, and then the next one he fought Firestarter, and then the next one he was on a boat and went to New York, and then the <laughs> next one he was a body swapping zombie, and then the next one he went to space. They were just swinging for the fences, and if it hit cool. Mm. And if it didn't, it was so cheap, it didn't matter, because we'd make our money back. 
that's kind of the vibe I'm getting from this movie where, listen, it's being made very cheaply. We're mm-hmm. going off of, you know, popular or somewhat popular. I actually don't think it's as popular as people think. I'm thinking it might be like a a Doctor Sleep thing where maybe people overestimated how much people are familiar with the original Black Christmas. Because well, the movie didn't do great on opening weekend. And I think no, I don't I don't the- think I don't think people are quite as yeah. aware mm. of Black Christmas the way they are as Jurassic Park where they'll just go yeah, see it if it's got oh, a Jurassic Park mm. attached but like um, the idea that we're just going to dash this one off as quickly as possible is basically just we don't have time to overthink it Yeah, we just, just have to throw ideas in there it and, make a, it as, and make it as fresh and exciting as we can yeah, and I kind of, of miss that element of just like just make the damn movie it, it does have sort of a, an off the cuff from the gut quality that can be admirable it doesn't necessarily make for the slickest production, but, yeah. you know, again, that if it's done in service of an idea that you're desperate to get out there, yeah. then I'm willing to forgive a lot. Yeah, I'm willing to forgive a lot, but I'm willing movie to anyway. forgive a lot. Yeah. Well, it's a slasher movie. No. Yeah, they're they're, they're we do, simplistic we do gra- genre. We do great on a curve, I suppose. Yeah, like much like I do for my Hallmark movies, I'll do the same for slasher movies mm-hmm. where... I'm I'm only in this for a few things, and if you can surprise me with like, <laughs> it's like our demands are unsophisticated. Yeah, slasher movies we're just we're just there for the kills, and I know some people are disappointed that it's PG thirteen. I don't give a shit. I really didn't feel like it needed to be that much more violent than it was. Um, it's, it's plenty violent. They get around it because there's they they change the color of the blood. They I'm going to say that, and that yeah. actually can get you around a uh, little bit. Yeah, like if you notice in a preview. They'll have, like, a stabbing or somebody will be sprayed with blood. But in a preview, the blood will be, like, brown. Mm. They'll they'll actually change the color of the blood. I really noticed that. For that, they're able to... Even though it's blood, Mm. it's still explicitly blood. They're still able to get around it because it looks like motor oil. Well, in any case... They did that in this movie. And I think that got them off the hook in a lot of ways. I think I think there's enough good suspense. There's a really uh, Mm. really intense, like, home invasion sequence that really, you know, got me. Mm. Um... And uh, I think the stuff that doesn't work is all, at the very least, a big swing. Yeah. And I'm willing to cut some slack for that because mm. I, you know, I, I, I don't I like it when I don't like it when you don't try. That's I, my thing. I appreciate. Uh, okay, you hit the tee on the tee ball, but you you hit it. Yeah. And the ball went somewhere, so good for you. Yeah. So a, is, I know. I understand that tee ball is a strange analogy here, but. <laughs> In any case, um, so Black Christmas. Bit of a mixed bag, but I think mostly good. Um, let's move on. I didn't see Six Underground. Six Underground uh, is the latest big, gigantic production from Michael Bay. Which nobody heard about. Which nobody heard about because it was one of those things that was just sort of thrown onto Netflix. Remember when they did the same thing with John Woo last year? No, you don't. <laughs> I don't, actually. Yeah, John Woo came out with a new f- new action film last year. I don't remember that at all. Jo- yeah. What was it called? Um, what was it called? Oh, shit. Never mind. I didn't realize it was a stumper. Uh, John Woo film. (laughs) John Woo Netflix. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, he, he made a film just last year and it was uh, sort of a return to form for him. Okay. And uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was supposed to be. Hold on. Manhunt. Manhunt. Yeah, he made this big John Woo action film where he just sort of went blistering balls to the wall back to good form John Woo action. Just sort of came and went on Netflix. Yeah. Nobody nobody talked about it. I reviewed it. <laughs> it's, it's good. All right. Uh, same thing with Six Underground. Michael Bay's back in his usual action. Well, I mean, they never kind of moved away from that. Mm-hmm. I suppose 13 Hours is the closest he got to moving away from it. Oh, but 13 Hours and, in Pearl Harbor. And, uh, and Pain and Gain. Oh, he, he, yeah. I, feel, I always feel like Pain, John Woo... Uh, John Woo. I always feel like Michael Bay wants to be the Coen brothers. 
Like yeah, he yeah, wants to he, be goofy. He and keeps weird. casting Coen Brothers actors like Francis McDormand and John Malkovich. Like yeah. they're in those movies. Yeah. And it's like Transformers movies. Um, John Turturro. That's right, John Turturro. Yeah, just yeah. I think he, he has a quirky sense of humor, but he doesn't know what to do with it. Uh, yeah. Pain and Gain. I gave a lot of credit at the time because I thought he was trying to take the piss out of himself. But then I realized you can look at it in a certain way and realize he's just doing the same thing again. Arguably, I do think it's one of his better films. I think he's kind of being a little bit critical of, like, meathead culture, if that's a thing. Maybe. Uh, Here, uh, Six Underground, uh, is Michael Bay doing his action shtick with a sort of spy uh, milieu. Mm. Ryan Reynolds plays one. Number one. Okay. He's one of the Six Underground. Oh, I get and it. He is a, an Elon Musk kind of, or a, 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 the Apple guy, Steve Un- Jobs kind of. Entrepreneur? Un- yeah, entrepreneur, inventor. Ah. And he's invented all of these like kinds of technology that rather than uh, bank on and become famous, he's just sort of sold to governments and now is doing what uh, he feels billionaires should always be doing. That is taking care of injustice in the world. And the way he does that is the Batman way. Mm-hmm. He forms a team of super spies, erases them from, yeah, has them fake their death, erases them from everything, and has them be off the grid super spies that are taking down like despots and governments. Yeah. Like his own, own privately funded six person CIA. Uh, and they they also uh, ask to not use their names. They're just go by their numbers. So he is one, and there's a uh, two through six as well. Uh, in an opening sequence that goes on for, I think, 20 straight minutes, we get to know the team. There's a lot of really fast editing. For Michael Bay, the action is downright balletic. Okay. Cars spin around. People get thrown off of uh, motorcycles and land in front of cars where they're splattered. Uh, there's this weird kind of Rube Goldberg uh, sense of action choreography mm. and clarity yeah. that I long for from Michael Bay. Michael Bay is usually de- usually deals in chaos. He just edits and edits and edits and edits. This time he seems actually invested. All right, that uh, sounds good. In a weird way. This is the Michael Bay film I've kind of been longing for. Okay, wow. I was not expecting this to be such a hit. No. Like, I kind of enjoyed it. And that's a weird thing to say because I typically loathe Michael Bay's movies. I have the same problems with Michael Bay's movies that a lot of critics have with Michael Bay's movies. I think they're chaotic. I think they deal with bad ideas. Well, you the thing is with uh, you is you thought that like mm-hmm. before other like you thought that when you watched The Rock, the Rock. which a lot of people yeah. consider to be one of his best, most coherent, cohesive mm-hmm. films. No, I watched, myself included. I watched The Rock, and when it came out in the late '90s, I was in high school. I was just the right age for The Rock, and it was the movie that made me kind of hate action movies. Yeah, it's like the, there's just nothing but idiocy and incoherence and noise in this movie. And yeah, that's supposed to be the, the coherent one. Yeah. Now, I haven't seen all of his movies. I haven't seen the Bad Boys films. I haven't se- and I haven't seen Armageddon. I've managed to avoid that one. Oh, oh you would yeah. hate Armageddon I pro- so I, I'm, I'm, You I, might like Bad Boys 1, maybe 2, but I doubt it. Yeah. And I, I think you would hate Armageddon with every seen fiber of your soul. the first uh, Transformers film. What I've seen most of his The first movies. Transformers film I do think is the best one directed by Michael Beck. Okay. For whatever uh, that's worth. Now, this does have his same sort of um, meathead sensibility, but it seems a little bit more uh, character-driven than his films typically are. Okay. And that, uh, you know, I think it helps that we have Ryan Reynolds, who's an incredibly charismatic actor in the lead role, and we also have character. Uh, we also have Melanie Laurent, 
uh, as she's sort of like the cold, efficient killer, but she's Melanie Laurent, and she's an excellent <coughs> actress. She's able to pull a lot of that, a lot of sort of soul out of the character. Oh, this is written by the guys that did Deadpool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it actually has a little bit of a Ooh. a wilder sense of humor <laughs> that Michael Bay actually allows to happen. Uh, now. That said, this isn't like a Mission Impossible film where there's just like a lot of really strong characters and a lot of really great action. But a film that's in the midpoint between Michael Bay's usual oeuvre and the the more recent uh, Mission Impossible films, turns out that's an okay action film. Mm. Uh, for once, for once, there's geography in this movie. <laughs> You can tell where people are in relation to one another. You can tell what they're doing, where they're going, and what their purpose is in each individual scene. Remember when that used to be standard? That used to be standard. <laughs> that was just something that was off the rack. And if this had come out instead of The Rock, I wouldn't hate Michael Bay as much. Well, honestly, I feel like uh, Rhett Reese and Paul Vernick, and mm. uh, hey, while we're doing full disclosure of everyone we've done a podcast with, we've done one with Rhett Reese as well. That's true. Um, but uh, they're clever screenwriters, and I think they make clever action movies. Mm. Um, and I think that's something that's missing from Michael Bay's over is cleverness. I feel Could like he has to. Wit, hi- yeah. I feel like he has to hide how shallow a lot of his material is. Mm-hmm. Maybe if it's just an okay script he can do good yeah maybe if it's not he's just doing everything he can to save it so i feel like it's an okay script it's not again this is not a great movie no but i was expecting to hate it and i ended up like kind of liking it it's dumb (laughs) it's dumb and there's a lot of really dumb conceits there's a a place for dumb Dumb's not the worst thing in the world I, i want it said that i don't hate dumb action if it's done right does it feel... Here's what I'm curious about, because I remember, like, oh, there's this new action movie called Six Underground going to Netflix starring Ryan Reynolds. I'm like, pass. Like, I, I, if I can fit it in my time, I will. What if I were to I'm not, like, going to bust my butt making sure I see that. What if I were to tell you it has the look and production, deva- production value of, like, a $150 million blockbuster? That's what I was about to ask, yeah. because here's my thing. When I found out that not only that, it's a Michael Bay film mm-hmm. that flew under the radar and is being released straight to Netflix, mm-hmm. I was like... Did he lose his budget? Like, how is this going to look? And you're telling me it looks great. This is a $150 million movie. This is a gigantic summer blockbuster directed by Michael Bay, written by the Deadpool guys, starring Deadpool, (laughs) with a pretty interesting... Dave Franco has a part in it. It's not very big, but he's got a part in it. I do like Dave Franco. Yeah. It has... uh, Corey Hawkins is in it. He plays sort of the soulful character. I also like Corey Hawkins. The the morality to... There's actually morality in the the movie. (laughs) It's not a hugely important part. It's not like a hidden life or anything, but you know, there's like at least words to that effect. Yeah. All right. Well, listen, you sold me. I'll check it out. This feels like a a perfectly efficient, should be kind of talked about midsummer blockbuster, but I think because it's an original property, perhaps, or just because it it's kind of retro and that it deals with sort of spies and espionage, and it has kind of a, a flip sense of humor. It feels like something from the '90s. Maybe there's just not a place in the market for a film like this. Maybe. I don't know. That's interesting, though. Yeah. And honestly, you, I really wasn't mm. going to make a point of going out of my way to see mm. this one, and now I will. Well, I, mean, I, 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 I like dumb action, and it's been a while. Like, Jumanji 
tried, but it's almost too smart to really do that. <laughs> but it's also not, yeah. so it's kind of this middle place. But I, I could really yeah, go I was, for a good dumb action movie right about I, now. I, I went in for this because I wanted to see what Michael Bay is doing with a smaller budget because I assumed this was a straight to video budget. I think this is. Mm-hmm. I thought it was going to be Michael Bay trying to make a gigantic action picture on ten million dollars, and I wanted to see what that looks like. Yeah, would it be great? You know, if he's working under a lot of constraints, would he be a better filmmaker, uh, or is he just going to try to do the same crap? Just it looks cheaper. No, he's just this is an A Michael Bay production just happens to be a straight to video release. Damn. All right. Well, uh cool. All right. Well, which leads us of course uh to the movie everyone's waiting for, uh mm-hmm. a Christmas love story, which is a Christmas love story I hear. It is a it is a love story. Mm-hmm. Set of Christmas and uh <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so who who are the lovers? So uh, describe them first. Okay. Uh, they are Kristen Chenoweth and Scott Wolf. Wait a minute! Yeah! Okay. Like, Scott Wolf? Okay, you can get Scott Wolf. Scott Wolf isn't a big get right now, but a name. But he, he's an unknown quantity. He's in a big hit TV series. And Kristen Chenoweth is Kristen Chenoweth! She's a national <laughs> treasure! <laughs> Kristen Chenoweth is... Award-winning actress. Award-winning. Tonys and all yeah, that. Yeah, one of the best singers in the world. She's fantastic. <laughs> Her acting career, I guess, like, isn't going where it should because she's wonderful and she deserves bigger movies than this, she, but whatever. She's like if 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 Bernadette Peters were somehow the evil twin, <laughs> Christian Chenoweth would be the good twin. And, and yeah. Bernadette Peters is a goddess. Yeah, so. so 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 good cast. You kind of you're, you got me so far. I'm like, ooh, okay. okay. What do we got? Kristen Chenoweth is, and this, by the way, this is a Hallmark Christmas movie, so, and I actually already talked about this on the Deck the Hallmark podcast, if you want to hear an hour and talking about nothing but this film, <laughs> okay, this will be short. Right. Uh, Kristen Chenoweth is a choir director in New York City, mm-hmm. uh, and they, uh, it's a non-profit organization, and what they do is, every year they have a big fancy gala, mm-hmm. and every year, for their big choir presentation, they debut a new original Christmas song, and the sales of that song fund the choir for the next year. So it's like the the British Christmas single. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. Um, a big, big plot point in the movie Love Actually. However, it's like two weeks until mm. the event, mm. and the song still hasn't been written. Mm. So the songwriter completely dropped the ball, and now Kristen Chenoweth has to do it herself mm. with only a couple of weeks to spare. Mm. Meanwhile, uh, there is a new uh, teenage boy uh, mm. on the uh, who just shows up one day, mm. just to sort of help out. Turns out he's actually a really good singer, mm. as uh, it turns out... Uh, he, he decides to, while everyone's like sort of not looking, play the piano and sing as loud as he can. And, oh, you heard that? <laughs> also, uh, the turns out that there is a, a, I think a tenor or a baritone in the choir who needs to be replaced because he's sick. Mm-hmm. So I'm watching this and I'm just like, okay, so he poisoned that guy. Mm-hmm. And he's trying to ingratiate himself with Kristen Chenoweth right here. I don't trust this guy at all. Of course, it's Hallmark. I should trust this guy completely. There's nothing, nothing untoward. Is is he handsome in a sweater, and does he like small town life? Uh, no, but his dad does, and his dad is Scott Wolf, and that's who Kristen oh, Chenoweth falls okay. for, not the teenager. That's a very different. That's a Lifetime movie. Yeah, this is a Hallmark movie. It's I, a different. I thing. fell in love with a fifteen-year-old. Yeah. No, uh, Scott Wolf is a widower uh, who is simultaneously a busy businessman who only loves business, uh-huh. and also a small town man who loves Christmas a lot. I don't know how to feel. Like oh my Kristen God, Chenoweth, me in two ways. Kristen, Kristen Chenoweth is a big city person who doesn't understand a lot of small town, uh, down home Christmas stuff. But she's also a singer and a leader of a choir that only does Christmas stuff. Hmm. 
Pick a lane, Hallmark. <laughs> you're, you're confusing two very different movies. <laughs> so half well, of it is you're, her, you have two tropes and you're mixing them up. Half of it, half of it is Kristen. Half of this movie is Kristen Chenoweth trying to get Scott Wolf to, to agree that his son doesn't have to go to business school and can pursue singing. And the other half is her visiting them in I think Connecticut. And like she's trying to get back to her big city life, but they keep charming her with their small town Christmas. Those are two different movies. You just jumbled them up. It's like chocolate and peanut butter. They taste terrible together. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, I'm with you on that, by the way. I know. Most people aren't, by the way. Most people love that. I think because um, I, I like really savory peanut butters. I think if you put the sweet, like, homogenized peanut butter with, yeah, like, jelly or on chocolate, anyway, it tastes better. Anyway, uh, there are two big things that need to be said about a Christmas love story. Oh. One... It's actually rather nice to see a rom-com of any stripe uh, that is about people in their 50s falling in love in a very respectful, sweet way. Yeah. And although I think Scott Wolf isn't really in this the way that Kristen Chenoweth is. <laughs> well, Kristen uh, Chenoweth can't help but sell anything. She's wonderful. Yeah. Scott Wolf is there. And occasionally he makes it look kind of creepy. Mm. Um, there's a bit where they put the lights on the tree, and she says, It's beautiful. And Scott Wolf looks at her with dead Terminator eyes and goes, Yes, it is. <laughs> and I'm like, She's an it now, Scott? Come on. Um, the other thing is about an hour. Okay, so this is maybe 90 minutes with, with uh, without commercials. All right. At the 75-minute mark, Kristen Chenoweth mentions, oh, by the way, about 17 years ago, I had to give a child up for adoption. And I'm like, no. 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 Oh, no. No, you couldn't possibly. Literally in my head, I was just like, well, that can't possibly be him because that's so stupid. Turns out it was the kid. It was the teenager all along. It's been her son this whole time. And so it was her son the whole time, and he's the son's father. Uh, Scott Wolf is the son's Scott father. Scott Wolf is the son's father. So is this She's gonna fall things, She falls like, in love with the guy who adopted her son. Oh, who adopted her son. Mm-hmm. Okay, I thought it was going to be one of those things where they're pretending not to know each other for, at the, like, the Will Smith movie. With, no, 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 no. With, um, no, no, it's not like that. It's, what, it's, what, what, what was the title of that awful Will Smith movie where his co-workers hire, like, goat people? Collateral to, Beauty. Collateral Beauty. No, 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 it's not like that. The kid yeah, found out that, who okay. his mom was, uh-huh. and he went to go see her, and he was ingratiating himself into her, not for a sinister reason, like I assumed, mm-hmm. but just to get to know his mom. Mm-hmm. And then, surprise, she falls in love with his dad, who is conveniently a widower. So everything's everything's so everything works out great. There's no stakes to speak of. Mm -hmm. When they find out, they have a couple of polite conversations about it, and then it's over. Mm -hmm. It's weirdly dry. Like you'd think that would be kind of a big deal, but it's actually just like, oh, well, that's cool. You're nice, and Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm not going to take your mom's place or anything. She raised you and everything, but we cool, right? And he's like, yeah, we're cool. And then, um, and then she has chased romance with Scott Wolf. She's not going to take his mom's place. She's his biological mom. Right, but she's She's literally taking her mom's place. Well, yeah, but not in like a creepy, like single white female kind of way. He's like, you don't have to call me mom. Like Mm. that kind of thing. Mm. Like, you know, I I know this might be weird and I actually appreciate there was a somewhat intelligent conversation about it. Mm. Um, But yeah, it's, I don't know if I've ever seen like it's like a deus ex machina that showed up ten minutes too early. <laughs> so it's like, it's still technically a deus ex machina, but it's, uh, it, 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 yeah, it's still just like, what? Come, comes up out of the floorboards. I'm here to fix everything. No, no, go back in, go back in. We, we still have a few plot points. Yeah. Oh, sorry, really sorry. 
Really, 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 really weird. Anyway, <laughs> come, I, come back later, Aeneas. Check me out. It's, there's been like a couple episodes of Deck the Hallmark since mine, but because mm. I do like two or three a week. Uh, but uh, if you go to the Deck the Hallmark podcast, you can hear a big, long mm. conversation about this. That's a really great show with a lot of really nice guys, um, and I was really honored to be a part of it because okay. they're 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 cool. Um, so uh, because, the, because as it turns out, this this weird illness about the Hallmark Christmas movies spread has spread far and wide. <laughs> It is underneath many people's skin. All right, so mm-hmm. on the critically acclaimed scale, let's give a quick rundown of everything we reviewed because it was a lot. Critically acclaimed scale goes from C, which is average. Most movies are average. Mm-hmm. C minus, below average, either bad or terrible. Or C plus, which is good or great. Yeah. Uh, a Christmas love story on the Hallmark scale is for me a C. All right. Um, it's fine. It's not. It's nowhere near as weird or interesting as you were. You would hope. All right. Uh, Six Underground. Six Underground. A C. Okay. Uh, but a high C. Right. A, a, a respectable, a respectably high C, which is, in, in terms of Michael Bay movies, a C plus plus. There you go. Because I usually hate his film so much, and that this one's actually enjoyable. All right. The Black Christmas remake. Uh, also a C. Yeah. A uh, lot of great ideas uh, that I really appreciated. Uh, Im- immediate in an important sort of way. I'm, I'm torn between a high C or a really low C plus. Um, All right. I think I gave it like on Bloody Disgusting. I think I gave it a three point five out of five. Okay. So I give it. I'd give it a three out of five. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That, which is respectable. I think so. Yeah. I, I'm gonna. I'm gonna say a low C plus. Okay. A low C plus. Like it's it's sloppy, but they try, and I appreciate it. Right. Uh, let's see. We got Bombshell. Bombshell. Uh, also a C. Yeah. Uh, you know, capable, interesting, good performances. Uh, want more out of that. The though. performances and the makeup really save mm. how kind of uninteresting their take on the material is. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the performances are excellent. Mm. Uh, a hidden life. Hidden life. C plus. It's one of the best of the year. Uh, also a C plus. I don't know if it's gonna crack my top ten or nothing, but it is excellent. And by all means, please go see it. Uh, Richard Jewell would have been a C plus. But it's down to a C because they don't have the strength of conviction not to do the exact thing they're saying shouldn't be done. Mm-hmm. But the performances are too good. Uh, and, and honestly, most of the filmmaking is too excellent to write it off completely. So I'm yeah. going to give it a C. Uh, Uncut Gems. Uncut Gems. C+. Plus. It's, a, it's a panic attack of a movie, and that is effective filmmaking. Yeah, same here. C+. Mm-hmm. Plus. Excellent. Really intense. Um, certainly Adam Sandler's best movie. Best live-action movie in a really long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then Jumanji, The Next Level. Uh, very high C. Uh, just an okay. entertaining summer blockbustery thing. Um, Introduces new ideas. Yeah, Yeah, even introduces new ideas to the previous Jumanji movie. Doesn't do enough with them. I think if The Rock's uh, Danny DeVito impersonation were better, it might have been a C plus. But you're stuck with him doing a terrible Danny DeVito impersonation for most of the film. It's it's pretty bad. Uh, (laughs) It's pretty bad. All right, so we'll be back. Here's what I want to see. I want to see Danny DeVito playing The Rock. That would be fun. (laughs) Um, Danny DeVito is just still one of our best actors. (laughs) He's so damn good. What a treasure. Um, Okay, so next week on Critically Acclaimed, we're going to be doing all the movies movie reviews for the rest of December next week because after that we have to do the best of the year and the worst of the year and the best of the decade and the worst of the decade it's going to be a long one so next week we will be back with reviews of Star Wars Star Wars 15 Cats Cats 1 Little Women Little Women 4 ish (laughs) 1917 1917 (laughs) 
And if we have time, we can, we'll try to fit in some other stuff like Just Mercy or whatever else we can. Whatever else we can. Whatever else we can get. Those those are many of the major holiday releases. Yeah. So we're going to try to get through those. Um, thank you very very much for listening to us here at the Critically Claimed Network. Please subscribe if you haven't already. Uh, head on over to Patreon.com/slash Critically Acclaimed Network uh, if you want to help the show keep going. You want to get a ton of exclusive content. Uh, we have an upcoming episode of All Our Yesterdays with Scott Mance mm-hmm. as uh, as our special guest, and of course he's the biggest Star Trek fan ever outside of maybe Whitney. Uh, no, he, he, I mean, he, he's a deep dive guy, especially okay. with the original series. I was more of a Next Generation kid. Okay. That, and that's where we come to blues, in fact. Ooh. Because so, I, I was raised on Next Gen, he was raised on the original, and those are slightly different shows. Luca, do you mind? Luca's on the table. Luca's on me. the table trying to podcast with us. Tell, tell I, us where they can find us. Okay, we're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at uh, William Bibiani. He is at Whitney Seibold. Uh, we have a ton of other stuff here at Critically Acclaimed Network, including uh, The Iron List, where we're talking about our best Christmas movies ever. That is currently out now. We'll be back soon with reviews of everything from uh, Max Headroom on Cancel Too Soon to other stuff on other stuff. We gotta go. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And never forget, everyone is a critic. I wanna go to the midnight show. I'm sorry, what?